Yeah, really kind of like bolt thrower, kind of a band out there on its own. We're really, really different from every other band that's out there. The way we organise things, the, what we do, just everything is just totally different from the, the normal run of the mill.
You just heard Carl Willits, and that was the Fourth Crusade from Bolt Throwers, the Fourth Crusade from 1992. This is the Requiem Metal Podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Jason. And we are revisiting, remixing, if you will, uh, Bolt Thrower, as we did a few episodes ago with uh, Edge of Sanity. Um, this was number three originally or something? We did our intro piece, then Edge of Sanity, then Bolt Thrower? Was and that Bolt right? Bolt Thrower, I think. Okay. Yeah. And then Immortal was four. Dismember was four. Somewhere. I know those are our five, our first five are those episodes. I just can't remember the order um, after Edge of Sanity exactly. But yeah, and it's, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a, a, a big undertaking to look at a band that has gained such a, a significant reputation. I mean, you know, if you think like of where Bolt Thrower was in 2008 and how people like thought about them and talked about them when we recorded that episode and where they're at in 2022, I mean, it's, it's like exponentially different. And I think that's, that's kind of worth revisiting a band like Bolt Thrower for that reason. Um, you know, plus like we probably just talked about Bolt Thrower off the cuff um, back, back in that episode. I yeah. purposely didn't go back and listen to it because I didn't want to be like, pollute it in any way i just kind of wanted to approach this completely fresh so i you know people who have listened to the episode you can tell us whether or not we've uh, significantly done a better job or not but i, I have a feeling we so. will <laughs> yeah i have a feeling we will so yeah and what you heard there with um you know fourth crusade um you know bolt thrower were so good at kind of opening their records and this is one of the kind of moodiest kind of heavy crushing um that first minute before that kind of mid-paced uh tank sound that they sort of have perfected on the, that record and really throughout their career kind of takes hold um and it's really you know fourth crusade which we'll talk about at the end of this episode in, in more kind of uh context i guess it's really a distillation of um you know all the bolt thrower formulas sort of coming together on that record um you know some people love that record and there's there's some as i did some research that uh, have some critiques of that including the band themselves and i'll, I'll bring that up when we get there but um, yeah it was pretty I, it's pretty uh, seismic difference when uh, colin richardson came on yeah exactly and the uh, because those first couple records holy crap the just the like the barbarity and sonic value of like in battle and sure. the aroma chaos like how down-tuned it was yeah, <laughs> just like holy shit. And then yeah, it's just kind of that's kind of the the peak of their first, kind of their first act, really. Exactly. Yeah. And the end of um, you know, the last with, with the classic lineup too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, was Andy on for victory? I thought he was on for victory. I think that's the end of the classic. Uh, lineup. I think they had a what the hell was that guy's name? Off to. Uh, okay, I thought they got the session guy for mercenary. Um, and I think that I thought, but I might be wrong. Oh, you're uh, right. I don't think he toured for it though. No, I think he left right after. I think yeah, he recorded they, they it he, was, he was done. Yep. So yeah, that's, it's that's almost the end of the classic period. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> you know, and you get this great, you know, lyric, you know, vanquished in the name of your God, one of the same to whom we all pray to him now pray. You know, there's there's a lot of cool lyrics that we'll be sort of, you know, sharing throughout. Um, I really gained a sense of appreciation doing the research for this episode, Mark. And I know you've already, already been this person of just what a great lyricist Carl was um yeah it was carl and uh um gavin were usually tag teaming gavin usually tag team okay with carl and then he also did that's that's something i just read in the the requiem interview we did in 95 i think 95, that yeah. i was asking if martin was going to be writing you know helping co-write lyrics or, or write lyrics in general keeping the same mm -hmm. type of um you know ideas and everything about it. and he's like oh he's uh gavin will be working with him as he did with carl 
So I think okay. I think Gavin was kind of like the lit lit mis Jesus, the uh, like he kind of like what's that? The mitigator, like the the guy that kind of like helped Carl like formulate his ideas. Or I think that and, and keep it keep it to the formula, like okay. to the bolt thrower for like he gave him the thumbs up if it was good or I'm not sure yeah. exactly. How, that's just what I'm. You know, that seems to be like what um, even when we get in the when we t do part two and we talk about um, Dave Ingram coming in and, and we actually got a chance to interview Dave Ingram. Um, and so we'll let him to talk about it. But yeah, Gavin kind of said I, I had to teach Dave like how to write bolt thrower style, you know, mm -hmm. let him kind of approach from that sort of standpoint. Um, I've got something before we do get too kind of uh, into the weeds here. This is something we'll be kind of looking at throughout uh, both uh, episodes. Um, and it came from a, a website we've used before. I can't remember what episode I used another article uh, from the quietest.com, uh, but it's a, it's a cool site that does really good journalism on certain things. Um, I don't know how deep they always cover metal stuff, but um, there's definitely been some things I found there. And this is, came out about a year ago, year and a half ago, January of 2021, from a, a writer named uh, Kez Whelan. And I just wanted to read the intro to the article because I think it kind of sets the mood for, for people, you know, coming into Bolt Thrower. And I do know um, for a fact, Mark, having kind of reached out to some people in the, the social media world, that there are there are some people who have never really done a deep dive on a Bolt Thrower who are Requiem fans who are looking forward to this because they're kind of cool. like, I think intimidated by bolt thrower because they just hear so much about them. They didn't really know where to start or kind of how to, how to approach them. So I think this would be cool. You know, we're kind of guiding both long-term fans and possible, you know, newcomers um, and young people. Cause this is a band that we'll talk more about it that I, I feel like young people stumble on all the time. Like a lot of my students enjoy bolt thrower first before they get into like other death metal or something like that, you know? So they're a good gateway band for, for that. But um, for sure. Here's his, uh, his, his intro here. It says, Bolt Thrower. Whoa, little voice crack there. I like that. It was like Going back to hit, teenage years. Get on the Simpsons there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Mr. Simpson, your popcorn's ready. Um, Bolt Thrower, an influential death metal band formed in Coventry in 1986, have bequeathed the world a formidable back catalog. Kez Whelan is on hand to help you pick your way through it. 16 years on from their last album and five years since their official breakup, and the cult of Bolt Thrower still shows no signs of weakening. In fact, it seems to be growing, if anything, with the band's influence rippling out far beyond the death metal scene they helped create. Aside from Slayer, perhaps, you won't find another band name that will instantly instill such feverish ad adoration from the metal community. And looking back at the unique, uncompromising sound they carved out for themselves in the annals of the genre's history, is not hard. it's not hard to see why. Inspired by bands like Crass and Discharge, just as much as they were Slayer and Black Sabbath, Bolt Thrower, along with their peer, peers like Hellbastard and Deviated Instinct, were pivotal in bridging that gap between hardcore punk and thrash metal in the late 80s. But even when you compare their early work to their contemporaries back then, there was a darkness and palpable physical weight to Bolt Thrower's music that no other band even came close to. As their early punk leanings swiftly mutated into something far more in line with the nascent death metal sound, it wasn't long before the quintet were, quintet were picked up by Earache Records, who joined bands like Morbid Angel and Napalm Death on a roster that would prove to be the building blocks for extreme metal for years to come. So I thought that's a, a good you know, conversation <laughs> piece to start talking about, you know, where these guys kind of fit in, I guess. Um, yeah, I think the only, um, I think uh, Discharge and I think Amoebix are big on their, as far as like shaping the, 
the feel this like yeah. apocalyptic you know i wrote down a as if i was writing a pull quote <laughs> what the hell did i put it about um yeah slayer was a soundtrack to hell and this is worse <laughs> yeah yeah this is like, like a, just like listen especially listen to it on headphones again for you know i've listened to stuff a million times but um going back to the earlier stuff and really listening to that deeper it's just like i nothing really sounded like that. no wonder people were so excited about this when it came out yeah and i think like like you know you brought up slayer and so did the article i think another band that you could kind of throw in the mix that's universally almost beloved is is they kind of fall in that motorhead kind of standpoint too yes i would agree where you know people in that venn diagram of like punk hardcore crust anarchy you know death metal kind of people grind people all kind of agree on on generally those three bands i'm not saying everyone does but they those seem to make most people happy you know for the most mm -hmm. part and all three of those bands have like well i don't yeah i guess motorhead even though they predate it but have punkish elements to their sound you know they're, they're for it's sure definitely there I think another band too that we'll talk a little bit more in part two um, is Sacrilege. Uh, they, yes, that's super. They, I know Carl's talked about how important that band was to him. They had a, a huge influence, and in fact, that will kind of get kind of mm, connected in when when he moves on from Bolt Thrower, and that, I'll just kind of say that for now. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> but uh, but you know, I mean, they were formed at a punk gig in a Coventry pub in 1986 as a conversation between uh, two friends, uh, guitarist Barry Thompson at the time, bassist Gavin Ward. Apparently, and, uh, in the toilet. In the toilet is where it happened. Yes, yeah. <laughs> like probably standing at the pisser. You know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm sure. Like That's during funny. some hardcore gig. And they kind of agreed that the, there were like four bands that like they like mutually love together. At least this is the research I found. I'm sure there's more than four, but the four they got mentioned were Sacrilege, Discharge, Candlemass, and Slayer. Ah. And I think the Candlemass thing is interesting because um, something I noticed that maybe I, it's always been there subconsciously for me when I've listened is there is a death doom tone to a lot of the stuff that they do even though they're not a death doom band per se like the way like say early paradise loss was or whatever there's a gloominess that's always sort of there and that somberness that floats over a lot of their music and maybe they were tapping like instinctively into some of the the somber aspects of like candle mass or some of those like early doom trouble or, or something like that you know yeah um not that that was a primary influence but they probably were hip to that stuff obviously you know well, I don't, I don't think anything quite sounded as heavy as Candlemass did. No, except no. for you know Sabbath and then Candlemass are kind of the yeah. as far as heaviness is concerned to for that sure. level. Like you know Pentagram and Witchfinder General and all that kind of shit was carrying on a little bit, but not that like just dirgy. The weight, you know? yeah, yeah, you can just feel the weight of those riffs when you you kind of get into them. Um, got a quote from Gavin here. He says, uh, "We'd come out of the punk scene disillusioned." We like the aggression of the sound, but wanted the precision of metal and thought in the end, we try to mix them both. It actually came from a Terrorizer interview from 2006 that I found. But um, I think that's that's it. It's like there are disillusioned punk heads who want it more. It's like we want mm -hmm. it to be heavier. We want it to be faster. And that's kind of what like Napalm Death, you know, a similar band of that era was kind of doing as well. Right. Kind of coming out of the anarcho punk and then being like, well, we want more. You yeah. Know? Let's how do we um, push this further? Yeah, Carcass too. You know, mm -hmm. obviously, the, there's some shared DNA with those those sort of British bands and like the the weird scenes that they kind of towed. Um, you know, 
And then basically what happened is they're joined by Baz's friend, Alan West, uh, who kind of was going to come in as the vocalist and lyricist. And then Andy Whale is suggested by a, a mutual friend. Um, and that's kind of where, um, you know, the band starts kind of, I guess, as a four piece. And mm -hmm. I found, um, I, I forgot to write down exactly where this came from. So my apologies, um, but it was an interview with Andy, Andy Whale. And um, they asked him, you know, how he got kind of hooked up with Bolt Thrower. And he says, it was 86 when I first met Gab and Baz. Jimmy Whit Whitley, who was a bass player with Napalm and Ripcord, came around my flat one day and said he knew some people who were starting a new band. After a couple phone calls, I went over to Leamington Spa, had a quick practice, and Gaz and Baz, uh, Baz and Gaz, yep, asked me if I wanted to join. And that was it. I was just coming up to my 21st birthday. Um, so that's kind of how he gets into the band. Interesting. I didn't know the Napalm Death connection to to them as well. You know, yeah. but I'm sure those guys were all hanging out together. You know, there weren't yeah, a lot. Of then. Yeah. The, I mean, the scene's pretty small looking back at it. When you see yeah, people like mention names, it's like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like royalty. And he talked too about like, like how he got into drumming, like in, in what sort of inspired him. And he says, I, I started to play drums when I was 15. Up to that point, uh, up to the point I joined Bolt Thrower, I'd always played in punk and hardcore bands, which is still my favorite kind of music. I only started to play double bass drums when I joined Bolt, Bolt Thrower. I just learned as we rehearsed. At that time, there was a great scene in Birmingham at a pub called The Mermaid, which we yep. talked a lot about in the, the Napalm Death episodes we did with Albert. Um, all the bands used to hang around at gigs. It was a very creative time. All the bands were playing stuff they had never really even heard before. It was great to be a part of that scene. So, um, yeah. And then basically the four piece went from there and they decided to record uh, some songs for a couple of demos, the In Battle demo and the Concession of Pain demo. Um, and I think it's that Concession of Pain demo that ends up, uh, they recorded that in 87 and that gets sent to John Peel. Um, and we'll we'll kind of come back to that in, in a moment. But um, it's right around that time after they send out the demos to John Peel that Gavin kind of decides he wants to switch to guitar. And um, a local bassist by the name of Alex Tweedy was uh, kind of brought in temporarily, uh, but he didn't really work out. And so when he left, uh, they let Joe Bench try out. And in September of 87, the five piece was kind of a, a complete unit. Now, I believe Joe was she was she and Gavin, Gavin were dating. That's what it was. Okay, yeah. I knew there was some something kind of going on there. Do you know how long that went into their the band? Was it like short lived, or were they dating in those early records? Uh, I think it was for quite a while. I thought okay. it was like maybe up until maybe Warmaster after, but that's okay. just you know I have no proof of. Yeah, that, no, but. sure. Not that we want to get like all tabloidy or anything. I just I, I didn't I never came across that. Um, one of the things that Mark and I were talking about, you know, off mic before we start recording is this is a band that is um, they are they're very punk in their ethos. And that means that they often didn't do a lot of interviews. Um, they didn't, you know, often market themselves the way some of the bands of that era did. And, and that's cool and very respectable. Um, but it's also sometimes frustrating when you're really trying to find out a lot of like research and information on those guys sometimes, you know, yeah. but, um, but we did our best. I think, I think we hopefully will pull a lot of the threads together to be able to tell that story. So, um, so yeah, like a question like that of like, whether those guys dated, you know, that's probably answered in most bands histories, but with Bolt Thrower, it's kind of like a, I remember seeing it in something or somebody talked to me about it. That was, it was either, I was directly talking to somebody or it was, cause I know like Joe was in the scene as well. 
Yeah, I think that I think that they were just saying, oh yeah, they were they were dating, and then she started she picked up bass or something. Oh, is that what kind of happened? Okay, I, bl- yeah. I believe so. But if somebody can correct us, please, yeah. uh, please send the yeah. information. Absolutely. And so now that they got a five piece kind of together, um, they played a few gigs uh, together, and then uh, that's when Peel called and wanted to do a radio session. And so um, Andy kind of comments on this this era. So I figure I'll, I'll let him kind of say. Um, the first thing they talked about is like how you, you go from, um, oh, here it is. Oh, okay. This is about, I think, Joe kind of joining the band. He says, uh, Gav wanted to switch to playing guitar. We tried a few bassists out who didn't work. And that's when Joe joined the band. As I've said before, it just worked well. Joe is a great bassist. We already knew her. She's totally into the music. Back then, there weren't a lot of females playing in grind bands. Most people thought it was a good thing. We've had a few shows where idiots shout at some rubbish, though. So... Yeah. And that's always been like the, you never want to tag Joe as like, you know, some kind of like token female or whatever, but, but, yeah. but you'd also be remiss without talking about how important it was in terms of representation to have um, somebody who wasn't just like up there for image, but was actually like, you know, part of the scene and was, you know, out there doing the right things and, and probably inspired other young females to get into extreme metal or to like dream of playing instruments and getting into bands instead of just being fans at the time, you know? Yeah. I think with, um, especially with, you know, with like crusty punk rock and hardcore, uh, women definitely had, you know, more of a, a role in that outside of, you know, being a photographer, you know, sure. going, going to the shows, like even, um, a band I'm researching for a project, Dissonance from Flint, had um, uh, had a female bass player as well. That was kind of like the one booking all the shows, and I okay. think I think punk is where like women actually got into that boys club a little bit, and then it yeah. kind of dumped over into extreme metal, not very quickly. No, but like no. I, I always thought it was like holy crap. There's because it was it was as a kid growing up in a town that's very you know it was very a white college town, and mm-hmm. I was like holy shit, Entombed has a black guitar player. Yeah, yeah, and oh my god, both are as a girl <laughs> playing bass, and yeah. yeah, like those things. It seems they seem like, you know, in this this current climate, you know, people think they're they're token or whatever. But I was honestly more interested in those bands that had people that were they didn't all look like a bunch of you know caveman guys. Sure. Like, oh, we've got you know. There's like there's different. There's all kinds of people play this music. Yeah, and I think that was uh, appeal for me with like some like um, indie rock and alternative stuff too. You know, like the mm-hmm. Pixies and Breeders and that whole riot girl movement that was like really inspiring for me as like a, you know, just like a, a white straight male, you know, like you said, growing up in Mount Pleasant to be like, Oh man, these like babes in Toyland are scary. And that's cool. Yeah, bikini you know? is awesome. Yeah. yeah. Like that shit's, and it, you know, representation matters, you know, like, because if you, if you don't see something represented, you don't really imagine that it can exist. And once you see it existing, then you realize like, Oh, that's cool. That's a cool pathway, or that that adds some diversity to to how you think about that stuff. You know. Yeah, and they it wasn't it, it was uh, they were great, and they happened to be you know different than everybody else. But it wasn't like it wasn't a token. They were, yeah, yeah, they weren't tokenized. It wasn't. Yeah, like, and it wasn't. Oh, yeah, yeah, we yeah, got exactly. uh, this person coming in just so we look better for to people. Like, exactly. They're not putting like uh, Joe out in like you know sexy clothing or something like that. No, she, yeah, the, no, no exploitation whatsoever. And she would give it as you know, as hard as anybody. So, I think so too. I'm sure up in those kind of scenes, you've got to really be able to handle yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so Andy goes on and kind of talks about this era too, with the, the demos and John Peel. So I, I'll let him kind of tell a little bit of this story. He says, um, 
Well, we sent a, a copy of the demo to Tommy Vance on a rock show who replied saying that it wasn't their thing. And at the same time, we sent, uh, I, or actually Andy says he sent the copy to John Peel. I'm not, not saying that's 100%, but he says I sent. Mm -hmm. um, a little time later, I got a call from John uh, Walters, who uh, was John Peel's producer, and we were offered a session. It was great for Bolt Thrower. And the day after the show, we were offered a record deal. And the interest in the band was amazing. Hundreds of letters each week. Doing the session was great fun. Our only release with Alan, the original vocalist. Funnily enough, Carl drove us there as he was a good friend at the time. Carl, in turn, did the vocals on two other sessions for John Peel. John helped us and other bands immensely. It was a sad day for alternative music when he passed away. Yeah, so. that was... Uh... January 3rd, 88 is when they recorded it. And then the 13th of January is when it first aired. Okay. BBC. Yeah. And I, I wonder how long, um, let's see. It's, I've got another, this is about Carl joining from, um, from uh, Andy's perspective. He says, Alan just got in touch and said he didn't want to carry on with the band. That was it. So really no drama. It sounds like, um, no, I don't, I think it was just, he didn't, he didn't want to put in as much as everybody else did. And it's yep. probably kind of scary. Being going from like you know playing in somebody's garage or whatever to playing for John Peel. Yeah, yeah, and also <laughs> getting national offered radio. a record contract and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, he said uh, Carl was an old friend. He had just driven us to shows in the first Peel session. He just fancied giving it a go, and it worked. And he didn't have a lot of time. And then we had to go in and uh, start recording uh, in battle. <laughs> so yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of where, where things are at. But yeah, that like you said, that first BBC session was January of 88. And that's when Vinyl Solution decided to contact the band and offer them a recording contract, which luckily was just a one album deal, which is going to yeah. prove to be important. Well, this, was, um, this is, there's something, I've seen this fucking thing so many times that I can quote it almost verbatim. Uh-huh. But the uh, the Hard and Heavy Grind, grind Crusher oh, yeah, special. Sure. Episode uh, 150 of uh, of. Yeah, where they're talking with uh, with Andy and with Carl, and they're talking about the they recorded the, the first record at Rich Pitch Studios, and then it burned down like that next oh, week yeah. or something. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. I think that that shows Wasn't up, our fault. Yeah, I think that shows up Carl somewhere <laughs> in, uh, in something. Um, I've got another thing before we go and talk about these two songs that we're going to play here in this very short early set, but this is. Um, this is from that Quietus article, and we'll be kind of referring back to that probably in almost every talk set over the course of this this two part uh, bolt thrower series. It's a really good like broad overview of everything. It's very good, yeah, and it kind of offers that kind of historical context that we like to sort of put into what we're doing, especially about a band like like bolt thrower that's so so important in the metal scene. Um, the author says, uh, whilst it seems odd, there's never been an official re-release or exhumation of the band's demo recordings. An early incarnation of Bolt Thrower is captured in top form on this early uh, 88 Peel session, recorded just a few months after Napalm Death had terrorized the BBC recording studios for the first time. Before Carl, Carl Willett's guttural roaring voice would come to help define the Bolt Thrower sound, original frontman Alan West brought a far more traditional punk flavor to the band enunciating stark throaty vocal patterns that wouldn't have sounded out of place atop bare bones discharge style d beat as punky as the band sound is at this point that uniquely cacophonous flattening style they'd later grow into is still very evident here that writhing grotesque riff that kicks in about halfway through forgotten existence is pure death metal predating the similarly twisted and sinister riffing style autopsy would popularize on their debut severed survival by a year so I thought that's uh, kind 
kind of a cool way to sort of introduce these two songs that we're, we're going to kind of get into here. Um, yeah, have you really spent much time? This is the first time I ever actually listened to the Concession of Power demo. I had never heard it before. Well, it's it's Concession of Pain. What did I say? Oh, Concession of Pain. Because yeah. Concession of Power is on that. Ah, that, that's what it is. Yeah, sorry. I noticed that. No, I know it's on the show notes. It's like, oh, shit, did yeah. I misread that or something i think but. it was uh i think it was like simultaneously that and like i was thinking of like siege of power or something like that yeah <laughs> I think all the stuff yeah, sounds kind of same something weird but, but uh, yeah, i've I only did. heard it uh on you know just on like um you know youtube and shit okay Got it was it. never yeah like they said it was never released never been released which is yeah. kind of unfortunate um but they're also very kind of uh protective about what they put out and put their stamp on too Sure. And yeah. it, I mean, all the elements are there. It's, it's really raw. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the fuck they're doing with the guitar, like tunings, but it's awesome. Yes. Um, and it just, it just sounds like more like they can't even contain all the energy that's there. Well, it kind of sounds, <laughs> I, I wrote, it says it has that off the rails chaos of early, like morbid angel or even yeah. like sarcophago or some of that like Brazilian kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, like for me, the primary influence I hear an early bolt thrower is kind of haunting the chapel, Hellawaits kind of slayer. Like 100% it's, agree. Yeah. it's just like baked in that weird energy. I don't know. I mean, there's the a energy, little bit of the, the dive bombs. You yeah. Know, the, the like flurry of guitars back and forth. I mean, some, some like pleasure to kill, like creator there too, which is kind of, you know, in that realm. And then mm -hmm. like a little dark angel too, that just like faster than fast thrash you know yeah. kind of stuff that's there um and but, they you, know, did, you know a lot of more blast beats than i ever really thought about you sure know, i never thought of them as like a blast beat band but jesus like in the demos well, like, and in, in battle there's a lot of blasts in those. yeah because they pretty much kind of leave the blast beats behind by Warmaster. probably there's some know? in Warmaster, but they're not um they're not you'll as, hear like, a lot chaotic. after Warmaster. yeah yeah, think, yeah it's just something that, fourth crusade you're kind of yeah they've kind of figured out where they want it they've slowed down a little bit you know like the war master they slowed down quite a bit too but um there's not the you know where the, where the drums and guitar and vocals are all kind of like barking in unison like some sure. of the early records where you'd have this little i remember first getting um realm of chaos and i was like oh cool every song has like 30 seconds of something kind of neat and then it just kind of all sounds the same yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. and then they get to like a cool hooky part and then it all sounds the same again yeah you know t with with my ears now i can like see a lot better. you can pull apart things a little yeah, bit better. there's yeah. there's more subtlety there than what i originally thought so we're going to hear the concession of power uh song from the concession of pain demo in uh 1987 and then the aforementioned the the song that quietus mentioned uh from peel session and this is cool this is kind of serendipitous but for some reason like i i listened to that peel session stuff and i was like you know the one I really like that that sounds good on Peel Sessions is Forgotten Existence, even though it's on in battle or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then it, that just happens to be the one that Quiet has picked out. And I was like, oh, that's that's cool. That's yeah. nice, nice, you know, that doesn't happen often, but it kind of worked out that way. And uh, what's cool about the Forgotten Existence is, A, it's kind of interesting to hear Alan West vocals, you know, for people that haven't really gone back and heard a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, he does some kind of Tomariasms sometimes in addition to like kind of the punky uh you know hardcore kind of singing stuff yeah a lot of, um, lot of discharge in there I feel, yeah I hear. for sure for sure um i love the pounding repetitious kind of bombast at the beginning and there's some cool like tremola little mini lead that's really awesome um before you go like you said into that kind of grinding crusty sort of thrash dive bomb after like about a minute or so mm -hmm. um very darkness descends pleasure to kill on this one too 
Yeah. Um, but more extreme and, and with a little more punk, you know, you don't hear a lot of punk in like dark angel, you know? No, so it's like a weird, a weird mixture of those kind of elements or whatever. And, um, I mean, there's a quintessential sort of bolt thrower that shows up or like at that three minute mark of forgotten existence where it just goes into that kind of steady chug. And that's kind of like, okay. And those, those harmonics to the, and then the chug, like that's, yeah. that's early bolt thrower. That's the, like the harmonic thing doesn't, it, it kind of peters out after a while. They use mm-hmm. it a lot in the first couple of records and it's kind of something I miss and I wish they would have had it a little bit more in later on, like, you know, how, how bride really double yeah. down on using you know the pinch harmonic to kind of like accentuate riffs and stuff you know and, that's been uh, one of the interesting things about for me going back to like um some of those memoriam records and we'll talk more about this obviously in part two but they they definitely indulge a little in some of the pinch harmonics and, and some of that um, oh absolutely scott fairfax is like he's like matt harvey as far as being able to almost like digest all the old shit and then regurgitate something out that's so sounds like it should have come out you know back in the 90s sure it's yeah kind of uncanny yeah. yeah it is pretty wild yeah um, I, i'll save our memoriam conversational part too but there's definitely a lot to say there so so this is gonna be a short set we're gonna hear from andy um a little audio clip from andy um and then we'll hear the concession of power demo from 87 and then we'll hear forgotten existence from the bbc uh, peel sessions in 1988 and then after you'll hear uh, from Gavin, just a couple of little comments about some of the early uh, kind of origins and, and some early stuff with the band. And then we'll kind of come back and set up their debut in Battle There Is No Law. I mean, uh, the band started in 86. We were a four piece and it was like me, Alan, the old vocalist and Baz and Gavin, who played bass then. And, uh, you know, we sort of like did one demo as that lineup which was the in battle there is no law demo then we sort of like decided that we needed a more fuller guitar sound so uh, Gavin went on to guitar and we got various bass players who <coughs> due to sort of like uh, lack of anything you know they were complete losers basically we ended up we ended up getting Joe in the band so that that was about mid 87 then we did the f- uh, second demo which was con- concession of pain and then uh after that we got the John Peel session which sort of like basically broke us across the you know the media and uh, from then it sort of like snowballed you know we got the final solution deal in 88 Mm -hmm. then we left them because you know we weren't satisfied with the way they uh, promoted the band you know they they didn't know how to do it I don't think so then then the uh, earache games workshop thing came about that was what was that 89 yeah and then uh we did realm of chaos then ni- 1990 we did warmaster which was say again somewhere along this yeah 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 yeah, yeah. He, Carl, yeah alan alan left <laughs> alan left after the first peel session didn't he so and then carl came in for the first lp
from my point of view, I don't think we are intricate. I think we're pretty uh, basic. The music's pretty basic, and that's what we've really always looked for. Mm -hmm. I've all seen, I've all, we've seen all the techno bands that do techno death metal, and, mm -hmm. and they release some good LPs, they come live, and they're shit, because they can't reproduce it. Whereas we try and keep it as basic as possible, always. We don't do anything that we can't reproduce live. It's, I think it's just screwing the kids. Anyone can release good LPs from a studio and be good bands, but then, then not to give them what you are live is, is disgusting, really. That was Forgotten Existence from the BBC Peel Sessions, and then from Bolt Thrower's demo, Concession of Pain, we just heard Concession of Power. Plus, we heard a little bit from Gavin there, so... Um, yeah, kind of dipping our toes into the the early history of Bolt Thrower there uh, a bit. Um, and basically what happens from this standpoint uh, to keep kind of the, the early story sort of moving is they, they head over to Loco Studios in Wales to record their debut. And um, here's what Andy had to say kind of about that. He said, uh, we had a week to record the first album, but it was remixed by Vinyl Solution, which we didn't know about until it was too late. Loco was a good studio out of the way so we could just concentrate on the album. I've never been happy with the sound of In Battle. I think the production of the Peel Sessions and demos was better. Vinyl Solution used secondhand tapes to record the album, so a lot of the clarity was lost. Then the original mix, which we liked, was scrapped, which we thought was better. Kind of interesting. I didn't, I didn't know any of that stuff. Um, I, I Maybe heard it at some point, but I do think that the demos have more personality to them than, mm -hmm. than In Battle. Yeah, yeah. I uh, in battle was one I didn't hear until like years later. Um, I know it wasn't you guys easily available either. Did you guys have it pretty early on, or did it take you guys a while to track it down? Well, I got. Um, I think I've still got my original copy here. Is oh, okay. Uh, let me see what uh, where that was from. But this is just a straight vinyl solution version. Okay, got I know it. that uh, it's it was distributed by Cargo uh -huh. back in the day. But I got um, the first time I ever heard these guys. There's that issue of uh, white dwarf magazine and a friend of mine we were big into role-playing mm -hmm. and there was an ad in there for bolt thrower and i'll i've actually have a printout of this part it's it's just a picture of the band and a bunch of the imagery from um from realm but it's like uh from the heart of chaos waste comes the ear splitting sound of bolt thrower a grinding death metal soundtrack to the screams of tortured souls and when <laughs> i was like you know fucking 13 or whatever like, that's like, awesome wow, that yeah. is cool and that's when i got went out and got that and then uh, realm was the first thing i got i think it, i probably got it in 90 maybe okay. a year after it came out and then went back and got in battle okay so you got in battle after realm but like still early on in your book yeah before before um Warmaster or anything i mean i don't think i heard in battle till maybe the late 90s i yeah, just I don't, don't i don't think it was easy to find well, and it wasn't something like when we were hanging out where you guys would be like, oh, you get, you haven't heard the first bolt thrower, you know, like, and you guys would put it on. It was like, we had moved on from that stuff, you know? Yeah. So like no one was really talking about it. And then I think they either reissued it or something. And I think you or Chris were like, Hey, you know, you should get this. I was like, oh shit in battle. Fuck. I don't, I don't think I ever heard it. So yeah. uh, it was quite a shock, you know, when you first hear it, cause it's just different, you know? Um, it almost sounds like it's uh, like like the recording's played too slow. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's got yeah. a lot of weird quirks <laughs> to it. It's but. very, it's, yeah. It's definitely got a lot of personality to it. Um, I found an interview with Metal Maniacs uh, with Jeff Wagner doing the interview. Um, it's from 
January of 99, Meshuggah's on the cover, uh, as is Benediction and Bolt Thrower and uh, Opeth and Anathema. But um, I talked to, I reached out to Wagner, um, asked if he wanted to kind of record something for this, but he's been really, really busy with that new Fate's Warning um, book that just got kind of released. So he's like been mailing copies out and doing a bunch of stuff for that. So um, yeah, I should be getting mine pretty soon. Yeah, I sh- I'm hoping to get mine as well. I was actually listening to Fate's Warning on the, the drive home from a wedding last night. So uh, nice driving through construction michigan construction uh late at night with some, some you know progressive metal but, um, so this was for like talking about the mercenary record do you think yeah they're kind of talking about mercenary but there's like other things that kind of they they just deviated or whatever but uh gavin kind of said you know within battle it was mixed without us we recorded it better than it came out i think it taught us that you can't have anyone else with their fingers in the pie and so they kind of learn a valuable lesson there to kind of have more um control over their sound and, and things like that which i think is, is smart of them you know obviously. and i think since that point on they they were pretty much you know they were the arbiters of it right there the and they're 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 famous in a world of compromise some don't you know that mm-hmm. they lived up to that until their stubborn you know demise really yep yep absolutely and um Turning back to the uh, quietest uh, article, it says, although it only hints at the huge rhythmic sound they'd later become known for, Bolt Thrower's debut full length is still an incredibly unique record, fusing the hard, crusty, again, uh, riffing style of bands like Sacrilege with the raw speed and intensity of the emerging grindcore genre. This is easily the mo- their most barbaric and abrasive recording. It's almost as if the band hadn't fully settled into their own sound yet, and they're going like the absolute clappers here to make up for it. There's something about the sheer speed of uh, this recording compared with the over- overtly thrashy riffs and genuinely apocalyptic atmosphere that feels more akin to South America extreme metal acts of the era like Sarcophago than it does their peers in Napalm Death or Doom. However, the title track still manages to incorporate one of those gigantic grooves that would later become their trademark. But there's a bristling, curiously stunted quality to the rhythm here that keeps it sounding more anxious and jittery than their later work. It eventually explodes into one of those classic tremola-picked bolt-thrower riffs, but complemented by an absolutely blistering blast beat, giving it a genuinely chaotic energy that you won't really find anywhere else in their discography. Yeah, I feel like Andy was still trying to figure out double bass, and uh, definitely this was not played to a click track which no. I think adds to its kind of uniqueness. But I'm going to read a little thing off of the, the in-battle press sheet that I found oh, a copy cool. of. Absolutely. Uh, it says, uh, both or have evolved to sound all their own, devoid of subtlety or charm, where noise, power, and speed are everything. Devoid like, of subtlety or charm. There's yeah. no charm here. <laughs> Fuck charm. <laughs> I think a- probably because it sounded like a jet engine to these people when they heard yeah, it. But, yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, that's it's like what a what a great like pull quote for to have an yeah. press sheet. Fuck charm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing subtle about this. It's like a beating you in the head with a hammer. I actually found an interview. They did an interview um, around the time of in battle for Italian um, for the Slayer mag, but there wasn't really anything worth pulling out. It was just more kind of I don't know absurd conversation that they were kind of having back okay. and forth. But at it some cool point, it'd be nice to be highlighted that. there. You know what's that? It'd be nice to at some point be able to use the Metallian, you know, the Slayer I, Diaries. I know I always have been sitting out forever, yeah. but it just kind of they don't. I don't know. They don't. 
I don't want to like knock on Metallion, uh, but I think like at least in the early issues, there's just not a lot of like journalism. It's more fandom, and that's cool. You know, sure. Yeah, I mean, he's young, and like that's why we don't go back to the early issues of Requiem very often too. Yeah, they're probably just kind of. I mean, I look at my reviews in Eclipse One and some of my early interviews. I'm like, ugh, ugh. You know, it's rough. But you you know, you're coming from a. uh, You don't really have a whole lot of knowledge you don't know why things sound like they are it's it's just completely going out of enthusiasm yeah but i at least did want to acknowledge that you know they were they were getting some coverage over in uh you know sweden and in norway and those kind of areas a little too which is cool so i wonder if they i didn't even think to look but i've got that um tesco v's uh zine the compiled version of i can't fucking think what it's called right now um but they would have like Venom reviews and shit in there too, like oh. Maximum Rock and Roll would do. I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I should have looked through that too. But yeah, I wonder the Touch like, and Go zine. Yeah. Oh, Touch and Go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, I wonder if they got coverage there. I guess that my question would be is like, where do you see in battle belonging? Do you think it's like part of like what Napalm Death and Carcass were doing with uh, Reek and and you know Fear, uh, not Fear, but uh, from from Enslavement or. Do you think it's like doing more what like Morbid Angel, you know, Alters is doing or like, do they belong anywhere at this point? Or are they kind of just so singular that they're just bolt thrower, even on in battle? I mean, they feel more death metal than any of those other bands did. Okay. To, to, to what we kind of think of death metal, you know, early death and, you know, sure. um, early autot, like that kind of shit it seems more, more like a little bit, doesn't really feel thrash outside of the, some chugs. But yeah, it just it feels really D beat to me. Okay, like totally yeah. adjacent to that because Carcass was much more, you know, chaotic. Uh, sure. I would say borderline like, like arty. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Napalm was kind of a force of their own, but they were definitely, you know, kind of on the the following the wave of you know crusty bands and you know all the D beat shit and uh, and then just you know trying to push that forward. That was kind of their their launch pad. I think was all that that early punk stuff sure. and trying to really make a, a name for themselves. And the whole, that crust term, I, I don't like, that's what we call all that shit back in the day. I don't know if anybody really uses that as a term anymore. I got it off the in crust. We trust comp Oh yeah, that I, I got, that. you know, yeah. years ago that has like concrete socks and some other shit, but they seem to like, both of her seem like they were just on that, like heavier side of, of all those crustier bands like that, like sacrilege, but like pushing it a little further. Got it. And it wasn't guess, political. It was just about the fucking end of the world. Yeah. And I think that's maybe the differentiation of like why they weren't like in the same kind of grind scene maybe is because they were not political, I guess. Um, I mean, they were, they're just talking about death and war and, and things like that. It know? wasn't specific to, to you know, like, you know, uh, how, how like on the nose some napalm stuff was sure you know, multinational corporations and stuff like okay i know what they're talking about yeah exactly <laughs> i mean and speaking of like what they were talking about you know in the first song we're going to hear the title track you know it starts with the you know classic in the fight for existence in life there is no law and the presence of eternal death there is no law and as the struggle for power and domination prevails in the arising slaughter it shall be every man for himself as in battle there is no law See that type of like really kind of um uh it it just seems so epic and like it could it could be used in any capacity almost. Like you could uh, be, you could be talking about World War 2, you could be talking about role playing games, 
It yeah, it's be almost anything. like uh, Conan the Barbarian poetry yeah. or something like that. You know. Yeah, it's um, it's like these battle like, music, um, you know? <laughs> like like archetypal big ideas, like myth like mythological ideas. Almost. Yeah. And I think that's what, as a kid, it was broad enough that I could understand it or get something out of it. But also it was like subtle enough to not really like beat you over the head too much. Well, I think that's probably why Bolt Thrower has, and this is something we're going to explore, you know, both in part one and part two, but that why their reputation has grown is because their music sort of stands outside of time. It kind of fits with any time in terms mm -hmm. of the subject matter. They're not like so topical that they kind of, you know, 20 years later, you're like, eh, you know what? I don't even know what they're talking about. Like, it doesn't really, that stuff doesn't matter anymore. Whereas yeah. they're talking about these universal sort of qualities of mankind or um, just why we, why we create violence, why we're, why we're, why we do barbaric things to each other, you know, the nature of man and, and stuff. And, and to me, that's like, that's always going to ring true across multiple generations and stuff, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh in that hard and heavy thing like uh i don't i think it's i think it's probably carl talking about it but like there's always going to be you know this is like a you, like you're never going to run out of talking about war because it's always going to be there it's just going to transmutate into slightly different things yeah you know yeah. start out with swords and shields and then it becomes you know drones and you know p taking people out of the equation except those that die <laughs> which i think is really interesting because you know if, if we're talking kind of thematically with that i think there's something about the albums that we're covering in part one that all fit together in terms of the themes um that you know even on the fourth crusade they're still talking about not modern war but they're talking about like ancient war or mythical war or things like that and yeah. for me when we open up part two of bolt thrower with for victory they become more topical and it becomes more real because they're talking about 20th century conflicts. And to me, like that's, that's interesting. And it's something mm -hmm. we'll, we'll talk more about, but I, I think there's, there's something to that that adds a more of a, their music might get less visceral, but in a way their lyrics become more personal and more like identifiable. And that makes those, those records that may be not as musically extreme to me, they're more lyrically extreme because they're hitting on stuff that like really is close to home. Yeah. Whereas like you can listen to like realm of chaos and kind of just it's fantasy kind of battles and stuff. And you don't really have to like look it in the face and really think about the nature of war. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, they're me, abstract yeah. concepts in the basically, yeah, they kind of for, for victory, everything kind of comes up to modern day exactly it's like yeah. in battle and the uh, realm are almost like pre-human history war and then war masters <laughs> like ancient times and fourth crusade like Sumerian or like something Roman yeah Roman times and you know Byzantine times and stuff like that so yeah yeah and then like you said for victory like you they kind of like drive into the 20th century and then you're like ooh, this is like this, these are like our relatives. This is like grandpas and, you know, uncles and great grandpas. And all of a sudden you're like, mm, I can't just dismiss this as fantasy anymore because now it's, there's, there's something realistic to it, you know? So. Yeah. And it makes sense. It like, it parallels their age too. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, at a certain point, but well, not everybody, but you know, a lot of people tend to get a little bit more grown yeah. up, but you know, some bands keep the same yeah. subject matter, but to have such a kind of, cause usually in the, the whole like war metal subgenre which it's it does i don't even think it's really a, a subgenre because it's it goes is everything from like fucking bestial warlust to marduk like it's it's like a lyrical theme 
like mm-hmm. an overarching concept. But a lot of that shit kind of comes across as being a little like, uh, I don't know, like like uh, real like extreme right leaning um, nationalistic kind of crap. Sure. Yeah, both of them never yep. never had that type of yep. vibe. It was just like here's here's the facts as we see. Yeah, them. this is the the brutality of war for what it is. You know. Yeah. So, yeah, and so like you know you get this sort of noisy intro in battle, and then those words I just sort of you know uh, read to you, and then then the chaos battle music sort of begins. You get these godly harmonics uh that are really fucking cool in there and there's a part near the end of in battle where i think it's from like the 350 to the 410 mark it's about a 20 second little part where there's like the blast beats and the solo are kind of going against each other and it sounds like you're in the middle of a fucking firefight it's it's awesome yeah that's that's a good good way to bring it it's almost like the first battle i remember seeing on a movie that felt visceral like that was um excalibur Oh yeah. Like, oh my God, what a, like, it's just complete chaos and you're lucky if you come out of there, you know, yeah. unscathed, yeah. but yeah, that, that's totally that, uh, like the, the, the guitar, Unsanitized. <laughs> yeah, the, the, like the dive bombs and stuff sound like, you know, missiles or, you know, bombs being shot down and it's just, yeah, it's all fucking complete chaos. Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, then the next tune we'll hear, we're gonna hear trio tunes from, uh, from in battle here is denial of destiny. And this is where, um, Another influence I kind of start to hear in these guys is like kind of real early, like morbid visions, kind of Sepultura too, mm-hmm. a little. And yeah, I kind I of hear that. it in this song. And, um, you know, I guess how is this different? You know, you already mentioned Napalm, but I guess another band of this era would be like Repulsion, you know. Mm-hmm. How is this different than what those bands were doing in like 87, 88 in your estimation from a like musical standpoint? Well, I think uh, Repulsion was definitely more, um, it was punk leaning speed with metal riffs okay and i think that both were they're almost i think they're kind of similar in that way where they're pulling a lot from punk but to think like repulsion was a band who was you know kids that were playing uh new album covers yeah and then they start trying to push themselves to go faster and faster and faster and wrote like slayer riffs but then had to end up playing them twice as fast so you get that (laughs) frenetic weird weirdness and i think both were was they were coming out of that crusty side and a little bit more of the metal was seeping it's almost like an opposite yeah you know kind of, kind of approach like yeah, yeah yeah it's crazy on uh, denial of destiny like the, that whole song is I, I wrote as a chaos bomb i said it's the middle child and see if see if you agree with this between morbid angel angel of disease and morbid angel immortal rights like yeah, it's that, like that total fucking shred fest that's yeah, happening there. It's the, like the evolutionary. It's like, you know, angel of disease was 86. That was like, you know, abominations era. And then immortal rights is 89. I feel like this is like the song that like links those two, you know, in a weird yeah. way. And then we it's get back of, to that, that mid paced chug thing again too. That's just like becomes kind of their, one of their signatures. Yep. Yep. And then uh, probably my favorite song off in battle. I mean, if I had to pick one is, is psychological warfare. Um, it, it's got that punkish kind of napalm, like Nazi punk, fuck off, death crush riff uh, yeah. that kind of lures you in, almost like World Downfall Terrorizer too. That's kind mm-hmm. of another another band that I could kind of connect that to. But the leads are kind of fucking flying at you like shrapnel. It's like Nocturnus or like Morbid Angel, like early Morbid Angel stuff. You know, it's yeah, it's it's crazy. It's the the chug and then that hook and then go back to the blast again. Like they're, I think they've got all these different ingredients that they're, they're trying to mess with and they're just you know, measuring the proportions to see what works best. Yeah. Yeah. 
and a great like cool backwards guitar outro to that song yeah really yeah. fucking trippy it's, it just i mean when you when you tear it all down it has such classic elements of what would, would go you know later be you know signatures for both or just sure yeah they're kind of in the dna baked in but it's like in the midst of all this chaos you gotta kind <laughs> yeah, of find it, that's yeah. what they kind of as they went on the especially with like the guitar chaos is and the drums and like the vocals are kind of almost like the the anchor point in a lot of these yeah. songs because the drums are a little off or they speed up and they're all over the place and the guitars are just like yeah it's just like a salvo of missiles going off or something <laughs> yes, it's nuts firefight exactly yeah. so so we're gonna hear this trio of tunes um from in battle from 88 uh the title track denial of destiny psychological warfare they were gonna hear a pair of tunes from realm of chaos and we'll talk more about realm that's that's gonna be a big conversation for the next talk set but we're gonna hear through the eyes of terror and drown in torment you're also going to hear uh, going into this set. Um, we reached out. Uh, I reached out to Ian um, Ian Glasper uh, because I thought maybe he had some associations, being that he's British and being that he kind of toes the line between extreme metal and the kind of punk scene. And he goes, he goes for some reason like Bolt Thrower never grabbed him the way like say Napalm and some of those other bands did. He said, but um, he recommended his friend um, who um, has been on one Requiem episode actually the Dax Riggs episode on that's Kate Gillum. And she wrote for Iron Fist magazine, which is kind of like the spiritual sequel to Terrorizer kind of uh, that British magazine. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. They're, they're doing more of like uh, historical takes on a lot of things. Yeah. Too. Yeah. And she's, uh, she's been in several bands, Blessed Realm, Lucifer's Chalice, Thronehammer, uh, Uncoffined and Winds of Genocide. And uh, she's cool. I, I, you know, talk with her quite often on uh, social media and stuff. Was it was funny. Our winter episode too. I don't know if she was on that one. It was definitely the Dax Riggs one. That's the okay. one I remember because she talked about the vocals and how much she really dug what he did and the soulfulness. It might have been on the acid bath, maybe not the Dax Riggs one. Okay. But um she she posted it was really funny. Like I had I reached out, was kind of talking to her, and she sent uh she sent the a couple audio clips that we'll hear throughout the episode. And then I saw her post on Facebook. She's like, I'm down a deep bolt thrower, like right now. Like basically, like she just was like listening to nothing but bolt thrower and i just kind of wrote like you're welcome she just kind of <laughs> said thanks appreciate it so pretty funny but uh so you'll hear from here going into uh this next set of music and then you'll hear gavin on the way out so in battle there is no law denial of destiny psychological warfare and then a pair of tunes from realm of chaos through the eye of terror and drown in torment there is definitely no denying the huge punk influence on Bolt Thrower in the early days. Um, those guys came from the, the UK anarcho-crust punk scene that was happening um, in the 80s, and, you know, which um, involved bands such as Axe Grinder, Amoebics, Antisect, um hell bastard deviated instinct icons of filth discharge crass and so on and um you can really hear that you know that anarcho crust punk vibe on the early bolt for material you know on the concession of pain demo and also on the debut album in battle there is no law um that album it's like a you know it, it's it's like a mix of the anarcho crust punk sound meets the the raw death metal 
grindcore style that was coming into um coming onto the scene at that time um in the in the middle eighties and um so yeah so the early recordings of bolt pro are, are definitely a, a, a mix of uk anarcho chris punk and raw you know raw simplistic um grinding death metal um you know and obviously a lot of people when they think of bolt thrower think of their more later later material and the later albums with their signature more refined crushing crunching death metal sound with with more melody and um and stuff but um but Throughout the years, um, you know, um, Bolt for a you know, they might have evolved their sounds and refined it and honed it, um, but they never lost their um, anarcho Chris Punk roots, um, you know, and and that's evident in their ethics and attitude attitude and mentality um you know from from self-management to um taking care of their own merchandise and taking care of their own tour booking and tour management and you know um and they were doing that all the way till the end of the band you know um and um you know they were still they still had that old crust punk attitude of taking care of business yourself and not just relying on record labels to do everything for you and um and i've got a lot of respect for bolt thrower for you know um for sticking true to their roots i mean you know a lot of people when they get older kind of move quite a long way from their roots and and some completely forget their roots altogether, but the guys and girl in Bolt Pro, um, they, you know, they still had that old anarcho crust punk attitude running through their veins. And that's um, evident in what Carl does these days in, in Memoriam, you know, you know, like M- Memoriam covered a, an old sacrilege song when they first started which again goes back to the mid-late-80s UK anarcho-crust-punk scene. And um, and also there's, you know, some of the lyrics of M- Memoriam are very, you know, uh, socio-political um, and, you know, very much taking an anti-racist, anti-fascist um, stance. Um, so, you know... I've got a lot of respect for for car wallets and the members of Bolt Pro, um, for you know for staying close and staying true to their roots, um, and like I said, even though Bolt Pro came a long way from the early sound, you know, especially the concession of pain demo, but also the debut album was still you know it wasn't full on death metal. It, it definitely had a lot of that UK punk vibe going on, that that crusty punk vibe um but um so even though their sound evolved a long way from that personally they still kept those um punk 
punk rock ethics and values and um and and attitude so yeah i've got a lot of respect for bolt thrower and every band has to start somewhere and bolt thrower started in the uk anarcho chris punksy
Yeah, I suppose it would really. I mean, there's no other bands that I can think of that have a female bassist in, you know, apart from the old hardcore bands, which is basically where we all stemmed from anyway. We all used to be punks, hardcore. So I think that's what a lot of our ideals come from as well, definitely from the hardcore scene. When people, you know, used to say we're hardcore and we started off, then we turned into grindcore and then it was death metal. They can't put a label on us, but I think basically inside, inside we're all hardcore, basically. 
but it wasn't really a, a perspective it was bringing a girl bass player in to add a new angle mm -hmm. it was um, the way it worked was we needed a bass player at that time she was into the band she could already play some of the material she learned the set in seven days ready to gig yeah and that's what it was really about it wasn't really girl boy or anything like that she could do the job that we needed and that's what it was all about so she gets treated the same as any other member in theory she's a man when she's with us <laughs> although she isn't if you get what i mean that was drown in torment and through the eye of terror from realm of chaos 1989 and then we started that set off with uh in battle there is no law denial of destiny and psychological warfare and we just heard uh heard from gavin there um but uh those last two tunes from Realm, um, you know, Through the Eyes of Terror, you can immediately hear an evolution in the sound from the In Battle There Is No Law stuff. Oh, 100% um, immediately. You know, from the tuning to the production, um, I mean, you can really feel the, the the presence of Colin Richardson right away, you know. Well, apparently he just mixed this, like, uh, yeah, they, is supposedly the producer. And I'm doing air quotes right there, so I don't know how much he had involved or maybe he was you know classic digby being cheap and didn't want to pay him for full producer but he's full you know, producer yeah through this thing and i'm like hey make this make sense um and you know they kind of they've reined in some of the chaos as you can kind of hear on um, through the eyes of terror um and they've made it more kind of bludgeoning and heavy in terms of what they're sort of doing there there's more of a focus i think to their their approach that you hear with realm um yeah i think they might drop to like drop c or something it's like ridiculously i remember um i don't know if it's an interview with them or somebody else talking about them but i've got the, it the, in, the, the the um it's tuned down so low that they can barely ever stay in tune i think wagner's going to talk about it in something i'm going to read from i'm pretty one of the okay. things i'm going to read from talks about the exact tuning uh mm -hmm. maybe gavin kind of comes in and stuff but but yeah it's definitely uh i remember talking to you when i first met chris um i think before i had met you one of the things that chris would always say to me is like, we would have conversations about like the heaviest stuff that was out there and he would he would swear up and down that realm of chaos or grave into the grave were the heaviest recorded guitars like ever and i was like oh shit you know <laughs> i just kind of i took it at like took took it at you know his opinion meant a lot to me you know what i mean and i'm yeah. not saying it isn't but like i think what he meant is like in terms of the tuning and stuff like that like yeah for no sure. one had really tuned like that before um but it's fucking heavy for sure um you know in that song through the eyes of terror when andy's blast beats come in around that two minute mark it's fucking like then the sweeping kind of mood and the tempo changes in the song that mm -hmm. really are going to be the characteristics of realm right like totally. you kind of said that it goes from like really like plodding and bludgeoning to like super like fast grind parts almost and then into like a death metal sort of part um i think every song's got a blast you know a blast section yeah yeah there's a cool part in it too where like one guitar is doing like this mid-paced groove riff while the other guitar probably barry is doing like these frantic like high notes that and it sounds like you're getting like hit from like air raid bombings and stuff like that it's it's super wild um it's yeah i think he's the, the harmonics cool. he's doing and with with andy's drums too it's like he has it's almost like this tank tread yeah undulation pushing everything forward much yeah, more of like a like not quite the obituary bounce it's got a little bit of that but it's more like this you know like a tank slowly you know proceeding up and you know firing shit off it's very like i never really put two and two together about that shit back in the day but now it's like wow this sounds like fucking war yes yeah, <laughs> absolutely it, it does it has the sound of war 100 so 
And speaking of that obituary bounce, Drown in Torment. It's got a little of that nice, I said, Celtic Frost, Hellhammer, obituary bounce at the beginning. Um, Mm -hmm. It's almost like a weird immortal riff. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really uncharacteristic of, like that riff on the entire album stands out as the weird, like the the most non-Boltora riff. It's also like one of their most like grindcore type tunes. It almost has mm-hmm. like a symphonies kind of moments and even some terrorizer kind of like moments through it and stuff. So yeah, uh, pretty wild. Then so. the, the dive bombs go crazy again and you know, yeah. get some more yeah. hooks. So the official title is Realm of Chaos, Slaves to Darkness. Uh, and it comes out in 1989. And um, I've got something that's really cool. It's from... Uh, it's one of those I bought like used uh, when we were doing a bunch of research for stuff. And it's mm-hmm. a terrorizer secret history of earache special issue that they did celebrating 25 years of extremity. And it's something I'll use throughout this episode. And even in the next episode, because um, Kim Kelly did like a write up on um, each of their um, earache releases, and kind of little blurbs on each of the records. And here's what she had to say about realm of chaos uh, slaves to darkness. Um, by their second album, Bolt Thrower had already established themselves as a punishing force within the nascent death metal scene. In the year between the release of their first LP, In Battle There Is No Law, and the unholy birth of Realm of Chaos, Coventry's finest discovered the art of downtuning and the rites of doom, resulting in a far heavier creation than the grinding death metal and hardcore punk showcased on their debut. Carl Willett's bottomless roar, Joe Bench's churning bass lines, and Andy Whale's frantic caveman drumming were a perfect foil for the screaming leads and crawling, crushing rips employed by Baz Thompson and Gavin Ward. And the whole shebang proved to be the first glimpse of the immortal and instantly recognizable bolt thrower sound we've come to love. The first album to feature the band's now classic logo and Warhammer obsession Realm of Chaos, Slaves to Darkness, took its title from a 1988 entry in Game Workshop's Realms, Realm of Chaos two-volume book series and was graced with John Sibick's cover artwork from Warhammer 40,000, Rogue Trader. To complete the geekery, the record featured several songs that explicitly addressed their favorite tabletop strategy game, including Plague Bearer and World Eater, proving once and for all that D&D is for suckers and only chaos gods are real. <laughs> the album was recorded at Loco Studios in Wales in April 89, engineered, and in the band's words, badly mixed by Tim Lewis and remixed by Colin Richardson that July. Okay. Eric, there, so there we go. I don't know if that's canon or not, but that's that's what their claim is here. Eric released this gloriously underproduced gem in October 28, 1989 and raised the bar sky high for the shape of death metal to come. Welcome, incursions of chaos. You know you cannot resist. To serve, worship, obey them is the only way to exist. So, yeah, the little bit of uh, um, trivia here is that Games oh. Workshop originally offered to put this record out. No shit. Under their own thing, but they went with uh, Earache because uh, Earache had better distribution. Ah. But the uh, I've got the one sheet of um, of Realm right here too, and it says um, that the album was. Let's see where is uh, exclusive. Will be yeah the um, both Rora's album Realm of Chaos will be available exclusively at Games Workshop stores, the retail stores that they had in the UK. So that was I, I think I don't know maybe that was for a limited period of time. I think that was during the the Grind Crusher tour. Okay, it was available that way. But um, I've actually I've got an original Eerie copy of that that still has you know the hype sticker of maximum you know volume and 
all that shit. And I know I didn't get it from a Games Workshop store, but maybe that was just in the UK for distribution. But they had a pretty strong uh, relationship with Games Workshop that was... The only other thing I can think of as a parallel is when, and it was much less successful, is when um, the the whole uh, entombed Entombed Marvel Comics kind of thing, which, you know, it was, it basically took a a kind of a much more deep idea and dumbed it down by, with word association. Yeah, because it was James Elroy. (laughs) Yeah. James Elroy now. Yeah, and not not into a a fucking, uh, you know, the guy with knives for for hands kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that rich. This is, I mean, this is how I got into death metal. Okay, this is is Games Workshop. Is okay. is one of the bigger because I was into I was, you know, listening to like me and Chris and a couple other people would have about four or five of us. Uh, we had an English class, I believe, mm-hmm. that we kept bringing stuff in. Like, oh, check this out. And, like Chris brought in like Sepultura, and I was like, holy shit. And on the I brought in Voltrower. Everybody's like, uh, "Oh my god!" Like the no nobody. The vocals were so over the top. Everything was over the top. Like we couldn't even believe how extreme this record was. Oh, and shit. so, like the the D and D avenue really like. Otherwise, I would have never listened to that thing. Yeah. No. So like that's that's one like cross promotion that actually worked really well for me. And I stopped mm-hmm. like I got into metal so much that I didn't. I never went back to tabletop gaming. Was it the hobby shop? Was that the place that had a bunch of role playing stuff in Mount Pleasant when we yeah, grew it was up? Yeah, downtown Mount Pleasant. I still have um, up in my bookcase. I've got the the original volume one of Roma Chaos that actually is the cover of the album. Okay, that's where I buy like all the Palladian stuff because uh, that's the role playing, yeah, the superhero TV. stuff. Yeah, that was, was a great game stuff. Yep, and TM TMNT. Uh, I think there was a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles version of it too. So yep, and like GURPS and all the other weird yeah, shit GURPS, from the time. Yeah. Um. Yeah, did they? So they had. A, I, I remember the little action figures, but I never really knew kind of how that game was played. I didn't know if it was a board game or what, because I would like look at the action figures when I would go in there, but I didn't have any context. So yeah, they were little. Uh, they were about inch and I think about an inch and a half tall uh, pewter. It was all. It was like a like an old style like a Napoleonic tabletop gaming thing where you'd you'd paint up all of your your battalion that you'd kind of make your own color schemes and you'd get tanks and you'd get all this other shit and you'd build terrain and then you'd roll to do specific things like, Hey, I want to fire a missile. Like, okay, you got this. And then they had these big clear templates that you'd put down to show like blast radius. It was really like a, it was a military strategy game really, Okay. but it was just like completely over the top. And how did like Dune-ish kind of with the, with how like dire the future was. Is that what it okay? I was curious like what the story was with, with all all of it because I never really investigated that element to, to Yeah, there's there's like this this emperor and the different factions of like the space marines fighting um, you know, the like Nurgle and the different chaos, you know, legions, basically almost like um kind of uh Lovecraftian interdimensional kind of horror shit fighting okay. with military, you know, like the the, the uh Imperial Marines, space oh, marines. Sweet. It was a cool story, and especially for like a teenage kid, it was like dark and disturbing and just disgusting. Okay, got so it. So it was real. It was real kind. Of, it was very appealing to. Yeah, it was everything about it was appealing as a kid. Yeah, oh, that's cool. That's very cool. Yeah, no, I wondered if this was. Uh, I think I remember you telling me that this was your kind of gateway drug to to death metal, and I I know that I've lent this out to a lot of people before, and this is very much kind of a gateway drug to them because 
there's something like not as threatening about bolt thrower because they're not talking about, you know, killing or Satan or, or, I mean, they're or talking about killing, or anything, but like, huh? yeah, it's not like, it's not, yeah, it's not autopsy lyrics or something like that. So, um, yeah, so it's kind of a safe, like kind of gateway drug almost, you know, to see, to test people out, you know? Totally. I think, yeah, you can kind of, you understand the basic concepts of, you know, war, but it's just put on this like ridiculous scale yeah. along with the ridiculous sound of everything too. For sure. Yeah. So I've got uh, several things to read, but the first thing I want to share is Jeff Wagner's intro that he wrote uh, to the Bolt Thrower interview from 1999 when he was the editor and writer for Metal Maniacs. Um, and it's his kind of personal narrative, I guess, of his experience with Bolt Thrower. Says the first listen to Realm of Chaos in 1989 was a revelation, an impossibly devastating new sound, a darker, more brutal, low end musical experience than uh, any before it. Ear canals trembling, the second listen was just as horrifying, marking the beginning of a long journey that offered nothing less than the finest in detuned metallic battery. The band name itself carried devastatingly dense weight, Bolt Thrower. I tried to describe the sound to those outside the Promethean underworld of the late 80s extreme metal. The only appropriate description came as, quote, it sounds like a huge rolling tank, which <laughs> you and I just talked about. And I, I think I mentioned it in several of the song reviews that we'll, we'll be doing throughout these two parts. But yeah, it's that rolling tank kind of sound. Like a big behemoth tank barreling straight for you while you be trapped into a corner, severely bloodied by the wall of sound and fury being hurled forth. Ironic then that when I first read when I first read my first Bolt Thrower interview, and loathed to call their music death metal, guitarist Barry Thompson uttered the term war metal. Realm of Chaos, nearly a decade later, remains one of the finest examples of how beautiful ugly music can be. <laughs> That's great. I thought that was pretty pretty awesome. And um, Wagner's got a way to really uh, sum up things succinctly, but also he, he quite does flower like good like beautiful language too. Which is why radical research episodes are way shorter than Requiem episodes. Yeah. So, <laughs> but um, they, they got other stuff to do. Exactly. Got big. Yeah. Other <laughs> other hobbies going on. Shit. Um. So I want to read the first column of the interview because this is where they talk about the tuning of Realm of Chaos. And okay. so Jeff says, uh, "There's no way to begin this interview other than thank you from Realm of Chaos." Along with Carcass Symphonies of Sickness, it showed just how far into the extreme metal. Uh, how far into the extreme comma metal could go. It remains one of the heaviest albums ever recorded and it took down tuning to a whole new level. And Gavin says, yeah, it was well tuned down. The regular concert pitch is an E and realm of chaos was an A. Okay. <laughs> and uh, it, Wagner goes, did you tune down uh, from the first album? And he goes, Oh yeah, plenty. Uh, and you've gone back up since, right? And he says, yeah, uh, not to where In Battle was, but we went up to C sharp, uh, which we're really happy with. With Realm of Chaos, we tuned it down so so far that it was getting to be sort of a piss take, where un unless you got tremolas on the guitar, there was no sound. Baz had a tremola on his guitar because he played the solos and he could reset the string tension to pull them tight. But for the bass, there was no note. There was, there was just this... <laughs> and it says makes a low uh, atonal farting noise. <laughs> so, and then I, I thought this was pretty funny. Uh, Wagner goes, have you ever heard mortician? He could be playing on the 24th fret on the highest string and it would still sound like the farting sound. And uh, Kevin goes, exactly. 
For us, it was a nightmare trying to play gigs because there was no onstage sound. You'd obviously get snare and vocals, but there was no real definition of the instruments. After we, record, after we recorded uh, Realm of Chaos, we actually tuned up higher to play it, so it wasn't identical to what was on the album. We tried it live, playing an A, but it was a nightmare. Uh, and as soon as we went up to C Sharp, we actually got a stage sound. So I thought that okay, was that's cool. probably where I originally read that then. Yeah, it might be. Yeah. Um, and then he goes on, he says, when Bolt Thrower started, you had a vibe along the lines of fellow UK bands like Extreme Noise Terror, Axe Grinder, Prophecy of Doom, that kind of stuff. But everyone else put you in the death metal category, which just didn't seem to fit your music. And Gavin says, that's life. Someone's always going to put it in a category. The record company will put it in some sort of category and try and sell it. If some scenes bigger like death metal, they'll put it in that category. If hardcore suddenly surges, it goes back into that one. So, yeah. So I thought that was, uh, I, I knew I'd read it somewhere. I just couldn't remember where that, that spot was, uh, where yeah. they talked about the tuning. Well, but, yeah, uh, I think uh, Entombed was in, in C. I think Slayer was in C, too. I don't oh, know, really? Sharp or something else. I remember that was when I first got my um, my HM2 pedal. Uh-huh. I was doing some research online to figure out like what the, you know, because I, I wanted to try to get the classic buzzsaw and tomb sound. Sure. And it's like, okay, put it into C. And then I had a tuner, at, if, and I could not, it was just driving me nuts trying to get anything to stay in tune. But it's also cheap, you know, cheap guitar, and um, the, the pedal's not the greatest. But just trying to, like, the easiest thing to do is the drop, do drop D. Where yeah. you're just taking the D string and, you know, dropping it down where you can bar off anything and, you know, kind of play. I think that's what all the um, uh, point blank shit uh Nail bomb. Oh, the nail bomb stuff I think it was all was, drop D. Was all drop, yeah. And I think Fudge Small was as well. Yeah, because it definitely had thick, heavy kind of sound to it. And like uh, Melvin's Houdini's all drop D. Yeah, that makes sense. That's yeah. fucking devastatingly heavy. Yeah. yeah. Um. So other things about Realm, it came in uh, at number twelve on Decibel's top one hundred death metal records of all time, of which uh, the esteemed Mark Rudolph drew the cover. Um, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> what'd you get to? What'd you? Oh, you got the Warmaster guy on there. Okay. I was yeah, just, yeah, he's kind of front and center. Yep, he's right. That was one, they just gave me all a list of everything, and they didn't tell me anything that had to be on there. That you know, I went by uh, how how interesting the imagery was, and and yeah. honestly, my personal connection to uh, albums. Okay, to where I put stuff. Yeah, no, this is very cool. The cover is, and uh, Greg Moffat did the write up for it, and he said. Um, like Carcass, England's bolt thrower emerged from their country's grindcore scene, but went on to make a vital contribution to the development of death metal and became one of the few UK DM outfits to achieve international success. Where the band's rough and ready 1988 debut in Battle There Is No Law sounds like the world's largest cement mixer. <laughs> <laughs> the 1988 uh, or 1989 follow-up hits home like a laser-guided missile. Songwriting, performance, production, and artwork all take a quantum leap forward to make Realm of Chaos a true death metal classic. Although small by U.S. or Scandinavian standards, particularly given the country's size, the U.K. death metal scene distinguished itself by producing distinctive bands, and Bolt Thrower sound is unique. Bruising and bottom-heavy emphasizes pummeling mid-paced riffage over out and out speed. It's a blitzkrieg of bowel-loosening, bone-shaking battle anthems, Dirty, destructive, and down-tuned to the depths of hell. It's death metal like people just might actually die. Um, yeah, that's pretty cool. The stench of patchouli oil gave way to the whiff of cordite, and Bolt Thrower's transformation was complete. 
They still played shows for punks and crusties, but Realm of Chaos rams right to death metal's core like an armored bulldozer. I think that is a that is kind of the dividing line between where the that whole kind of like crusty you know ENT vibe isn't really there at all anymore. Yeah, it's kind of they become their completely own thing. Yep, they they're definitely solidified. Um, And something we haven't really mentioned yet is I think that um, that Carl might be the easiest to understand death metal vocalist to ever exist. He enunciated in a way that I when I was going along with the lyrics, I didn't need the lyric sheet. Because I could understand what the fuck he was saying. You could hear what he was saying. Yeah, yeah. No, I think he's very palatable. And again, this gets back to why are they such a great early death metal band to give to people? Because again, it's not like so like barking or like um, utterly guttural that you're like, I can't, you know, there's some people that really get bothered by the fact that they can't hear the words in death metal. I don't mm-hmm. care. I know you don't really care. I don't but- care either. Yeah. But there's some people, especially when you first expose them to them, like, ah, oh, it's just nonsense, you know. So we'll give them both thrower because then you can actually hear it, you know, and you can mm-hmm. actually, like you said, hear the enunciation. No, I think you're you're spot on with that. Um, this is my first bolt thrower, too. Um, you know, even though I didn't get into death metal until like the mid-90s, this was the first one that um I can't remember if Chris told me to check out Bolt Thrower, but I do remember that we picked up the cassette used from new moon and so i don't know if it was one of your guys's cassettes I'm, I'm you guys sure. were well to cd yeah it totally would have been one of ours because um i don't think we started getting tapes until jesus or CDs. Did, uh yeah cds until the my the first cd i ever picked up was spiritual healing okay that was 90. so that's i think 90 is probably when i st- I was I was back and forth. I don't think I got that one. I had that on tape first too. Okay. So, but that was because it was a difference between like what eleven dollars and eighteen to twenty dollars for an yeah, exactly. CD. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm sure those were probably so. Ours. So I probably had your tape for of Realm of Chaos. Yeah, uh, which is you know, and then I remember lending it to Drew Dealman, and Drew Dealman was a, a mutual friend of Mark and I's, and he was a punk kid, skateboarder, all that kind of stuff. And he was obsessed with Bolt Thrower. That was the only thing he wanted to listen to. And it, it was the only death metal he liked was just Bolt Thrower. That was it. Mm-hmm. And at first I thought, like, is he just being kind of a dick? Like, you know, because was he just like trolling us, you know, like, or something? Yeah. yeah. But like, I truly believe he like literally loved Bolt Thrower, you know, and it was just like a, a, a unique relationship that he kind of had with them. I, I think they're such a unique or kind of a singular band. Nobody sounds like them. Nobody's people have tried. But they, uh, nobody's really like cracked that code enough to make yep. it, you know, to really be there. And I, I think there's, there's, you're looking back at a lot of the early death metal bands, there are so many of those, like singular band, you know, think of Autopsy, Death, yeah, uh, Napalm Death, Carcass, Morbid Angel, Bolt Thrower. Like each one does not, none of them, like Terrorizer, none of those bands sound. They have common traits, but they all have their own sound. And I think the further we get into it, it becomes so, I don't know, everything kind of has like, here's the boxes you have to tick to sound like this type of certain Mm -hmm. death metal band or not. But man, those early ones, like there was no rules. There was no subgenres yet. I think that's actually what makes probably that first like era of earache, like almost unbeatable because there was so much variety. It's like the blue note of 
Yeah. It was just incredible the shit that came out of that. I mean, early peaceful stuff was great too. I'm, mm-hmm. You know, like, but but there's something like that early run of earache is just untouchable in terms of like what it did to to lay out multiple countries and multiple mm-hmm. scenes. You know, and that's that's what's so unique is the international quality of of earache and the the variety of sounds mm-hmm. that you were kind of getting off of all that. You know, and and the the whole uh, distribution network that earache had stateside as well for as it, for imports. Which they had, they had that distro before Century Media, before mm-hmm. Nuclear Blast, like so we got a little bit of taste, and then you saw like okay, once we kind of knew what some of this was, then we're like oh, Peaceville, they have their own thing going on, and then Nuclear Blast and Century Media has this much more, you know, artistic um, representation that we hadn't really seen at that point. Yeah, and you know, coming from the same countries, but wow, all this stuff sounds so different. Yep. Yep. Um, I got some interviews with, um, I have one, one to read from Andy and this is the first time I think we've heard from Joe in this episode. And they asked her about Realm of Chaos a little bit and kind of how the, um, cooperation with Games Workshop kind of began. And Joe said, Games Workshop approached us after the boss had heard one of our peel sessions. They originally wanted to release Realm on their own label, just like you said, Yeah, there we go. but we felt the distribution would be a lot better better through earache so we ended up just using their artwork we had to pay a lot of money to use their artwork oops sorry flipping pages here um and there were a lot of rules over copyright and territories where it was used but we ended up with a killer logo and a great cover so we don't regret it at all i'm not sure what they thought they'd get out of it i think realm was the least commercial of our albums so if they (laughs) thought we were going to be selling millions they were very wrong so kind of funny um and then Andy kind of talking about that. Let me find. Uh, he's talking about the same kind of thing. He says, uh, Games Workshop got in touch with an idea just before Earache did. So we thought, why not get both companies involved? And it worked out quite well. We went up to the old Games Workshop offices. They had some other great artists working for them. Carl was into the Games Workshop stuff. But the main thing for Bolt Thrower was the artwork, which suited our music really well. They also designed the logo, which is now an iconic symbol for the band. Um, yeah, I think that's the stained that's glass so, and yeah, yeah I, I mean that logo is like fucking awesome, you know, is what it is, but it's, yeah, uh, cause it started out before like the, they had the second incarnation of it had like the more in like uh, on Roma chaos, it's just kind of like a, a flat color, like a kind of color gradient. And then mm-hmm. like the, the actual letters became almost like they look like they're forged out of steel, like almost like, like sword blades or something as they went on. Um, later on sure yeah no i i agree and i think it's just it's so identifiable and it gives it a unique flavor that's different than just kind of uh your typical kind of um death metal black metal logo that's kind of unreadable or or very to me this is just it's classy too in a way that's it is it's just kind of different than than stuff that was kind of coming out around that time yeah Um, it's uh and and thinking about (laughs) Like the name itself is absurd. Yeah, it, 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 it's it's like a it, like some orc weapon or something. Yeah, it's um, a dwarvian um, artillery unit. Yeah, is, is, which yeah. is basically it's basically like a huge um, crossbow. Okay, got it. Because uh, we had it had them in the game, and I was like, oh. man, why would they choose that as a fucking name for the band? But now it's just like it's such a weird statement. 
you know, if you said it to like, you know, your, your mom or dad, they'd be like, what you, do you throw like, you know, bolts from the garage around? Like what, this makes no sense. But Don't in the you... context of like this game and Crustpunk and yeah. DB, like it just seems like some weird, almost like a weird slogan or something. Don't you think that because it is so unanchored in anything that it also allows for Bolt Thrower to be more easily palatable to people? Oh, sure. I mean, yeah, compared to Dismember. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or things like that, or like bands that were, you're just like, uh, okay. A hard mountain to climb for some people, you know? Yeah, yeah. Autopsy compared to Bolt Thrower, you know, that's, it's definitely a easier. It doesn't immediately tell you what it is. There's a little bit of intrigue, I think, on what the fuck it even means. Well, I think that was like for us, like why it was easier to get like maybe girls into Catatonia or Anathema or Paradise Lost because there wasn't. It wasn't so it wasn't cannibal corpse you know it wasn't like blatant. It wasn't, yeah yeah it didn't so like you just chase them away immediately just from the the outset you know mm -hmm. um this is from the the quietest uh, article again it says instead of the typically gory or satanic themes of early death metal or the overt social commentary of grindcore both are as lyrical subject matter focused entirely on warfare and more specifically games workshops warhammer series even the band name itself is taken from a dwarven artillery unit from the tabletop game Whilst this gave the band a robust aesthetic that looked cool in a t-shirt, it also allowed them, as the best fantasy in sci-fi often does, to tackle deeper, more existential topics. For all the heroic imagery of space marines occupying bullet-strewn panoramas in fantastical, cosmos-faring journeys, the Bolt Thrower name conjures uh, there's an unflinching, gritty realism that, it's, uh, that is part and parcel of their vision. So I think that's that's kind of a, a key thing too is that it it gives you a sense of what you what you think about, but it also is like still sort of open to interpretation. So you can kind of put your own spin on what you want to get out of the band. You know, For sure. It's like you said, like you could, if you want to, you could get glorification of war. You could also get um, the horrors of war and a cautionary tale about war. Like you know, both are. I don't want to say they're. I don't want to say they're not preachy because, and they're not really, but, but they do have some, they do have politics for sure. And, yeah. um, but it's, it's just different. It's a little bit more in the eye of the beholder, especially on like a lot of the early releases, they maybe get a little bit more overt in, in some of their later releases, but, but even then it's not like finger pointing stuff. It's just, it's just presents material. It's almost like documentaries, like take from this, what you want but this is the truth. So totally move on.
lyrics on the new album, the Fourth Crusade, um, they're written on a more kind of like kind of personal level as well. They kind of relate to a more wider kind of uh, variety of issues and topics, really. Which obviously gave you more scope as a songwriter to to cover more yeah, I mean, topics. That's it. The music's progressing. You know, we kind of we're kind of moving out and changing the boundaries and trying new things. So you know, again with with the lyrics, they kind of I put a bit more you know, personal feelings and you know thoughts into there, which is something I probably wouldn't have done a few years back. You know, which is something as you as you grow with confidence, you know, you, you kind of get the strength to do that. That was Warmaster from Warmaster, Cenotaph from the Cenotaph EP, then World Eater, Plague Bearer, and we kick things off with the intro and Eternal War from Realm of Chaos there. I wanted to share with the kind listeners of Requiem um, the lyrics to the song that you just heard, because I, uh, I think that this kind of sets up the, the mood for, for where Bolt Thrower is starting to move into. So for Warmaster, it says, Throughout all time, within the past, present, and future, man has sought to destroy all that stood in our way. As man fights man in the epic struggle for survival, the Warmaster shall reign, with oppression fed by a burning hate. Hatred of mankind twisted within their mind, within your mind, corrupted by powers unknown, the downfall of this world, the end of your life, beginning of human strife, destruction of this crippled planet, war master, and inhumane prophet. You shall obey all that he commands, hatred of mankind within your mind, corrupted by powers unknown, the downfall of this world. Now once more we rise to fall, man's destruction in the final war, nothing's left of the human race, the planet's end, our destiny oblivion. That pretty much sums up uh, their entire edict, really. That, that's it. That's that's I it. That's, that's a future statement right there. <laughs> I think this uh, this this album kind of like brings them to that kind of like awakening maturity or whatever wherever they're at right now. But yeah, like going back and revisiting all, a lot of these lyrics, it um, they're great. Mm-hmm. They're really good and concise and like. Uh, Carl's underrated as a lyricist. And, yeah, yeah, just like the ideas Gavin, that are that are thrown out too. Yeah, are just kind of like man these are all like like spot on you can't really argue with any of this shit yeah it's it's short and succinct but poetic at the same time mm-hmm. it's got um some personality to it for, from that well, standpoint. the war master used to be like you know somebody who under the king that would you know basically handle everything yeah then it became like uh the nicholas cage movie you know like where it became like big business yeah, like, military it, industrial complex yeah, it's totally kind of like permutated over the years so yeah that's interesting I just said the song and its moods and structures to me really sets up Bolt Thrower Phase 2. This is kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, Realm of Chaos and, and that stuff. It's like the end of like one version. And this is kind of the beginning of like kind of a, a different evolution of the band to some extent. Um, you know, there's there's more kind of doomy groove patterns that you hear in that two minute mark um, that goes into that kind of I wrote catchy as fuck cause of death um, kind of riff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I said it, that cause of death riff cut smooth like molten hot sword through flesh or butter. Your metaphor preferred. <laughs> um, well, the leads are yeah, less chaotic, the, but not in a bad way. Yeah, so, I was, uh, I was just going to say that. the Yeah, the solos, they're like they're more focused and a little bit of the craziness is taken out and it's more thoughtful what notes they're using. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like, yeah, like the, they're, at, they're at a point in the war where it's more strategic. It's less, it's less like this, you know, pre-human civilization war. This is... This is yeah where the the modern pre-modern war kind of stuff is starting to come into play a little bit. 
Well, and it's interesting from a thematic standpoint, if you look at realm as being mostly kind of, I don't want to say fantasy war, but, but more fantastical or mythological. Yeah. Mythological is a good word. I think war masters kind of getting into a little bit more stark realism in a way. And I think musically it's slowing down a little bit. And and what I wrote, as I said, you can kind of think of this as South of heaven to realms reign. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's perfect. That's a perfect uh, encapsulation there. Because South of heaven, like at first people were like, Oh, what, you know, Slayer slowed down a little bit, you know, it's going to be less heavy. No, it was, it was just as heavy, but it was like, it breathed, it, it had more breathing room in certain songs to, for you to kind of feel the weight of the songs a little bit more. Whereas like realms just throwing everything at you. You don't really have a lot of time to sort of ponder and think about what you're hearing as you're, you know, um, as you're in it, you know, but to yeah. me like with war master and fourth crusade and stuff that they, they do after this, it's going to be a little bit more contemplative, um, both musically and lyrically, you know? Yeah. I mean, fourth crusade is totally like, uh, seasons in the abyss. Yeah. I wrote that too. That's very, <laughs> very seasons. Yep. Cause I think uh, that's like a lot of the, as it went on, like, you know, Lombardo's drumming was was impressive early on but it like almost made the albums for those three records i think yeah it was just like what like it it elevated it to such a degree everybody was just like holy shit what is this Mm -hmm. it um war master comes in at number 25 uh on terrorizer's top 50 earache records of all time and Mm -hmm. uh rob sace i think is the guy that wrote the little blurb he says there's no such thing as an inessential bolt thrower record but Warmaster is certainly a contender for their finest hour. Working out how to follow up the superb realm of chaos can't be easy, but uh, Bolt Thrower aced it with an orgy of out-and-out death metal carnage. Tracks like Cenotaph and the title track were soaked in imaginary blood and very real grooves. This is heavy shit that laid the template for groove-laden death metal to come. Grab your sword and get stuck in. So Yeah, I mean, uh, Warmaster was a big deal in... Even like the the crew that me and Chris ran in with, you know, like Skater. Yeah, tell, me, Skater tell me more about this. Skater yeah. crew. Um, and it was just like, that was just, it was just like a prime thing. It was like that, I think that and like obituary cause of death, some of that stuff was so singular, but like undeniably catchy and interesting to people. It was like easier to get into, I think. Yeah. Um, and I actually like when Warmaster came out, because that was the first... That was the first album that I actually got, like when it came out, like the day it came out, kind of, or maybe within the week or something, because it was an import. Um, you know, Realm of Chaos was maybe a year after, and this was like the one. Uh, you know, it was like my Injustice for All or something. Okay. And I was in a graphics class in high school, and I made, I cut back, in, not to belabor it too much, but like some of the the earlier processes for for you know making, um, for reproducing things. And before computers was doing RubyLith, where it was like a, a thin red colored film that you'd put over the top of whatever drawing you had, and you could kind of cut out pieces with an exact knife and pull it out. And you could, that's how you could make silkscreen um, posters and stuff too. So okay. I made Warmaster stickers and T-shirts that I stuck all over the, the, school. Oh, fucking <laughs> these, a. these big cool. things. So, and I was, you know, giving people, people bring in like their, like, oh, I got a jacket. Can you put the, you know, whatever, like the week that I had the screen ready, like, you know, pull, pull screens off all that shit. Um, but also the funniest part, I just actually texted him last week. Um, this friend of mine, Aaron Sprague, who, um, his mom let me paint a war master mural in his bedroom. Oh, I remember you talking about that. I feel like in, maybe in our episode three, I think you it might have been. It might have yeah, been. Um, but I, because I, Chris was like, "Yeah, I think that's still up there." 
And I was like, no, it couldn't be. And uh, like five years ago, his mom finally painted over it. Oh, but, it, shit. but it was a good, like, I would say 12 feet by eight feet tall mural of, of the war master cover. That's so awesome. it definitely had like an impact. Just the, like, the cover, everybody thought was awesome. The cover, if you look closely to the main guy looks so disjointed. You can't tell which are his legs from other people. Okay. There's yeah. some weird shit on there too, but yeah, it was just, that was kind of a, to a lesser degree of like how a rise was like where everybody fucking loved that. Like everybody was open to new shit. And Same year Wolfer too. It was definitely, yeah. um, was definitely one of those big ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it showed up in their death metal special too. the, uh, terrorizer one at number 32. And, um, Chris Chandler wrote, he said, with Warmaster, Bolt Thrower nailed and honed a signature sound only really hinted at in previous albums. While it was smoother, slower, better arranged, and more melodic than earlier works, these monstrous riffs and rhythms were even more devastatingly heavy, epic, brutal, and precise. Amid the Florida Stockholm morass of 1991, Warmaster was a proud monument to superior Warwickshire uh, craftsmanship. So, Yeah, I think it's, it's not, I don't think it's my favorite Bolt Thrower record. No, it isn't mine either, but it's it's a perfect bolt thrower record though too. It, it was like it's like a it's a pivotal record, I think, in their career. I it's I don't know what my favorite record is. I do love the later discography a lot. Yeah, that last one might be my favorite, but we'll talk about that in part two. It's yeah, tough. It's just like there's it's it's one of those, you know, stupid things like, Yeah, you can't pick your kid. Or, yeah, who's your favorite, your favorite kid? Child, yeah. <laughs> but um yeah, everything each one, there's no I don't think there's like a disposable record. There's there's so many different like kind of like touchstones throughout the, the career. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But this one definitely like uh I think lyrically, um, visually and the production yeah. was like totally you know they were just jumping leaps and bounds from from realm are you a fan of the cover i do like the cover yeah i i like i like the gatefold cover better because you can see the full thing you see the full see, thing yeah yeah there's like a, a severed head on a pike and there's like a cathedral that's on fire and shit in the background because it kind of has like a comic book quality to it which i think is cool this is still a games workshop oh, um, is it okay yep um, Got it. i think they might have bought it outright but it's a games workshop artist i don't think they used the they're like intellectual property like they did on realm like the Got space it. marines and all that kind of shit but no i really do like the cover a lot it's their last it's it's their last kind of like mythological D &D fantasy thing D &D D &D cover. Yeah. yeah yeah totally they, they kind of grow up after this a little bit or they kind of have to you know in well they go eyes. to yeah the constantinople painting yep. or whatever yeah. and then yeah then on to photography yep yeah i mean i guess they come back to it with the honor valor uh cover kind of is a throwback to the games workshop type stuff right yeah yeah it's kind of yeah. it's in that same that that greenish kind yeah. of uh this pile of you know guys shooting at each other yeah yeah well we could talk about that more in part two but yeah like that, the mercenary cover better but that is kind of like a nice throwback yeah yep so uh decibel not to be outdone had it in at number 32 on the top 100 uh death metal albums of all time and it was written by uh, the review was written by somebody near and dear to us named Chris Dick. Yeah, that um, guy. He's pretty cool. Yeah, that guy who we've just uh, we actually been hanging out with the last week or whatever. So mm -hmm. um, he said after eating uh, worlds on breakout long player realm of chaos, war obsessed bolt throw a return with the career defining war master. Less grind influence than its predecessor, the Brits parlayed Barry Thompson and Gavin Ward's penchant for thick tones and sick riftsmanship and Andy Wales' incessant double bass into an undeniably destructive force. 
Add Joe Bench's flabby strings and Carl Willett's discernible bellow, and Warmaster emerges as a mid-tempo death metal standard. Whereas Realms of Chaos was about chaos and disorder, punctuated by the insanely good world eater, Bolt Thrower's third was about control. Colin Richardson's standout slash heavy yet clear production and songs from the intro unleashed upon mankind and profane, profane creation to cenotaph and rebirth to humanity. Warmaster's deck is stacked with bonafide death metal hits, even CD bonus track and an earache incentive to purchase the CD over the LP and cassette at the dawn of the format wars destructive infinity marches like a dream machine program for death. Although Bolt Thrower wouldn't use Games Workshop for the gatefold cover, the Pete Nifton, Ian Cook, Conan-like battle scene, replete with missing right lower leg on the center warrior, and a stained stained glass logo ushered many a long hair into Warmaster's forged steel maw. No filler, all killer. If there's a gateway death metal album for neophytes looking to the past to understand the present, Warmaster is absolutely it. Well, I think he he hit it right there with uh, Control. Yeah, um, I think they're everybody's at their the peak of their powers at this, um, and just like, like from songwriting to execution of you know music, are everything. I mean, Warmaster is like as a title. Yeah, <laughs> for, for this type of music is kind of like perfect. Um, they asked Andy uh, about Warmaster a bit, and he's uh, they asked him about the preparations for the material. Did you have any specific goals for the album? He says, "No, the usual." So a lot of practice making up some killer songs as always just wanted to make better album than the last. We couldn't use games workshop as they were too expensive. So we used one of their old artists, maybe not my favorite album, but looking back on it, but the songs were still great. Um, Album. uh, It's the album, which took us to the next step to the real sound of both or the fourth crusade. Um, And then they asked them about uh, the recording at slaughterhouse studios and about the fire. And he says, okay, that was the one rich. something else." He goes, uh, Slaughterhouse was an amazing studio, mainly because of Colin Richardson. It was at the back of a pub, which didn't get anyone in. My opinion was that the owner did an insurance job on the place. Uh, but for us, it was the next step <laughs> in finding the real bolt thrower sound as a mid pace and heavy as fuck. So, so yeah, so conspiracy, maybe a, an insurance deal. So, I mean, usually I think most, uh, I would say probably 80% of fires are probably from insurance. You think fraud. so? Yeah. I think so. I think so. Okay, interesting. That that's it comes from no particularly um, no information that I have. That's... <laughs> just 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 kind of <laughs> weird speculation stuff. Yeah, I feel um, that uh, the people will do shit to to get money. I mean, that's just yeah, kind of how uh, it work for sure. Yeah, there's always a side hustle somewhere. You yeah. know. So um, I think this is with is this with uh, yeah this is a, this is an Andy Whale interview from '91 from. So from the year that Warmaster actually came out and they asked him, um, uh, where is it? Oh, they said, what's different styles of music um, are influencing you as you kind of wrote Warmaster and stuff like that. And he says, well, I mean, we're all listening to really uh, different stuff. Like Baz listens to, you know, rap type stuff and house stuff and more death metal type stuff. Gavin and Joe, they like more trouble and candle mass that uh, King Diamond stuff. Carl's totally across the board from extreme death metal to stuff like kingdom come, you know, and I listen to a lot of different stuff as well from like extreme death metal to like rock type stuff. And I like uh, a bit of Paul Simon. I like the tribal drum beats and all that. And even things like queen, I can't stand disco or anything like that or rap music, but I like anything. 
So pretty cool. <laughs> and then they asked if these different influences affect his kind of style of playing. And he says, uh, I don't know. Um, I suppose it does in a way. It's probably a good thing listening to a lot of stuff because you just get stuck in a rut listening, you know, death metal all the time. You're just going to start coming out with generic death metal riffs. What we try and do is go for a more of an original sound, which is not standard songs, but like you're supposed to do sort of thing. I suppose everything you listen to influences you in a way when it comes down to it. It's always got that bolt thrower stamp on it. You can always tell it's bolt thrower, but it always sort of likes to move a bit forward as well. From the three albums, it's sort of like progressed, but in a way that you can still tell it's us. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty, pretty accurate. Yeah. I guess, what are your thoughts on this idea of, because I think War Master really is the, the, the affirmation of this so-called, you know, war metal sort of genre. Um, you know, historically you have, you know, I guess your, your Man of Wars are kind of, you know, have some aspects of that. Then you have, um, you know, Tank, uh, I think was kind of, you know, considered to sort of delve a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Bestial Warlust. Uh, there was that thrash band at war. Um and one of my unsung favorites, I don't know if you know these guys, um, I actually read a review that Wagner did, uh, I think in that same Metal Maniacs issue on the, these guys called Blessed Death um, from New Jersey. They're, they're pretty awesome, actually. Um, it would have been kind of a fun, like um, obscure, like kind of Patreon for a thrash series. Yeah. They have a record called Destined for Ex- Extinction. And it's uh, it's kind of like Holy Terror if there was a little bit more Slayer and Iron Maiden Killers kind of sound to it. Okay. It's, uh, it's fierce, but it's good. It's all like kind of war kind of lyrics and stuff like that. So I don't know. Do you think it's an actually like a genre or do you think it's just sort of like a, just a kind of a clever tag to kind of throw on things? I think, I mean, I, I like the original thing where it was either, either Gaz or Baz was saying, yeah, we're, we're war metal. Like mm-hmm. to try to skirt. Cause usually like this shit comes up from journalists. Yeah, for sure. It's we like, how can we, how can we like make a hook? To make this shit like interesting or to differentiate it from something else and uh, yeah i think the i think both are kind of semi really are kind of perfect for that that tag mm-hmm. i don't think it's a subgenre. I, I don't think so either um i mean there's a lot just, of bands it's, sing it's about too, war but yeah it's like, like not it, a sound to it you know no no and i think I don't, uh, stuff like like black metal has a an atmosphere that's mm-hmm. that's kind of and most I mean black metal is so broad right now but uh, as far as like going back to this era, um, black metal had an atmosphere. You know there there was that was like the unifying thing and yeah. then it kind of diverted out from that a little bit. But I think they were that was more of a I think war metal is something that you could just put on both roar makes a, like a singular title. Anything else was more kind of like you know blackened thrashy. Uh, more throwback stuff. I, I don't really, I can't think of a war, anybody that calls themselves that, that really sounds like a unique singular thing. They're kind of like retreading things from the past, except for bolt thrower. Well, cause I kind of think too, that bolt thrower actually sounds like war sometimes in terms they do. of, and it, th- this is something that, you know, when you started talking about that early on in the show, um, I never even thought of that. And it's so apparent now when I listen to it, that they're they're doing battles it's like mandatory suicide slayer where with like what lombardo's doing to sort of create that that war atmosphere you know yeah or even palagon one with like sure or like even smolder like uh dismembering shit too like throwing you know machine guns into stuff but yeah like but they do it in a way that's not i mean it it is literal it's but it's organic organic. Yeah, yeah like they're they're not making the instruments sound 
like something they're not like they're they're taking what slayer started and kind of like okay how do we make this sound like you know world war three mm-hmm. yeah no i agree i agree so it was just it was something i wrote down to kind of discuss is like you know what is war metal a genre question mark <laughs> yeah i mean so. i i can't think of more than you know half dozen bands um, no that ever, it just always got that. tagged you know like whenever people would introduce bolt thrower to me or talk about they're like oh they're like kind of war metal i'm like yeah i guess you know you'd and see I'll it in advertisements it and stuff yeah exactly it's a marketing kind of scheme absolutely but i i would put on like when i think i've maybe told this story before when we play risk in um my ap class after the <laughs> ap test i'll put bolt thrower on and, and some kids will be like this is cool did you like, put even, on, like, like we're next to like, conquer? Or? Yeah, just like <laughs> yeah, it's more of the newer stuff because it's a little more palatable, I think, for mm-hmm. the kids. But uh, they, they kind of get that rolling tanks kind of like that that feel of like okay, yeah, this feels like the movement of the front or something. You mm-hmm. know, it's uh, pretty cool. No, I, um, I love like doing the the show, and we when I have like some type of discovery that it's such like a no shit. Ah, yeah the, or it's sort like, of god that's so fucking obvious now that sure. i look at it but it's like it's like a revelation it's it's yeah it's, it's great like digging into the stuff like deeper than you know because i listen to that i listen to warmaster fucking hundreds of times i was gonna say um, you you probably know this band as well as almost any band in your existence and yet, yeah for yeah. you to be able to kind of discover new layers is, is pretty awesome i could yeah i can air drum and air solo every single song <laughs> of this bit and i could probably sing along without even thinking about what the lyrics are, I could probably get like, you know, 85% of the lyrics. Cause I, there was a, I think it's a little bit later on. I had one, uh, a word off. Oh, really? The, what the hell was it? Uh, I think it's still here. No, well, I guess the, yeah. oh, no. Sorry. I just, uh, oh, here it is for, actually, we're going to be talking about this, uh, on the next set. I think what dwells within. Yeah, that's that's the first song we're gonna play in the next set. Is yeah. the um, God, my ear handwriting is so fucking terrible. Somewhere in the powers that dominate. Dominate, yeah. And I thought it was terminate. Oh, the, the terminate? Way he says it. Which but either would be fine. It, yeah, but it is it is dominate. <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah, like it just the, these phrases are so evocative of just I don't know. Someone the powers that terminate sounds so fucking I mean, cool. But that's when you're my 15 or song, 14 though. or whatever, it's just like oh my god. Yeah, it's where he you know sings that some of the powers of Dama. It's such a yeah. an evocative moment for sure. So, um, before we get into those songs, a little bit more about the album as a whole. It did come in at number twenty one on the Decibel Yearbook nineteen ninety one issue, mm-hmm. um, number twenty one of albums released in nineteen ninety one. And uh, Kevin Stewart Pankos had this to say: "He said before war metal came to mean dizzying blast beats, underlying wind tunnel guitars." playing a miasma of notes that dissolve into the ether quicker than acid disintegrating Christ skull fragments. Jesus. That's a sentence. <laughs> it's a, well, how many, how many thro- commas are in that sense? I know. Both thrower <laughs> were its musical personification. All right. No one topped their transportation, uh, transposition of the crawl of tanks through bombed out villages and ground troops barreling over a bullet ridden hillside. Warmaster was a consistent mid-paced thud, a steadily approaching infantry of distorted thunder demonstrating that war was indeed hell and death metal was deliciously hellish. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of fun. And then, um, as I said, Kim Kelly does these write-ups in that earache issue um, for Terrorizer on these the earache bolt thrower records. And here's what she had to say about Warmaster. She said, in the midst of recording their trio of Peel sessions and the Cenotaph EP, 
Both are once again joined forces with Colin Richardson to summon up an even murkier effort. Taking heavy influence from Doom Pioneer's Candlemass and enlisting a primal Hellhammer-worthy stomp to lead their march into battle, the quintet, carried on, the quintet carried on playing slow and destroying any opposition. True, they tuned up a bit higher than on Realm, but the rift sunk further into the abyss, and the fast part seemed faster when lined up shoulder to shoulder with their Doom passages. Only a few years after St. Vitus pissed off basements full of Black Flag fans by playing mockingly slow in the midst of their slam dancing, both threw through the speed-obsessed death grind world for a serious loop. While label mates Napalm Death and Carcass strove towards ever-climbing shock and speeds, both throw pulled back, vacillating between their trademark mid-tempo surges and zombified lurch to prolong the torture. Warmaster abandons the blasting grind of the predecessors, but chaos still reigns. The sleeve came courtesy of Pete Nifton and Ian Cook of Max Joe Graphics when Game Workshop priced themselves out of the bolt thrower budget. <laughs> but the scent of blood and triumph and love for all things Warhammer remained intact. Realm of Chaos, Slaves to Darkness made its effect felt in Cenotaph's homage to World Eater, and the cover's epic battle scene still raged. Warmaster is widely regarded to be Bolt Thrower's finest hour, and a single listen to the filth and the fury contained within these 46 crucial minutes makes the reasons why all too clear. That was kind of the perfect length of albums in the early 90s. 46, yeah. 45, 46, 48 yep. minutes. Like, that was kind of, that was it. That was kind of the LP. Track. That was kind of the LP link, right? Because you had about, what, 20, 24? five minutes per side i think is all you uh, something get. like that right around like yeah 20, it depends on the the fidelity you can yeah you can like yeah. if you want it to still sound really good you didn't want to go much past i think 25 yeah. minutes or yeah. something so um yeah indeed so one last thing and then we can talk about the songs but uh i want to turn back to the quietest um uh article from uh i think last year from january of 2021 mm -hmm. and this is where they kind of set up uh both um the Cenotaph EP, which we just heard something from, and Warmaster. Serving up as a warm-up for their next full-length, Warmaster, the Cenotaph EP is an important step in the development of the Bolt Thrower sound, acting as a bridge between their early, rougher style and the more robust, steamrolling approach they'd later adopt. Cenotaph itself is obviously one of the finest jewels in the Bolt Thrower crown, but its B-side, Destructive Infinity, uh, but it's the B-side, Destructive Infinity, that really demonstrates how confident the band had become at slower tempos. There's very little trace of grindcore left here at all, as the songs begins with a gigantic, excuse me, doomy swagger, and the scratchier, acidic guitar sound has been usurped by a thick, steel-plated dirge that seems to envelop all in its path. Um, before I read the next paragraph, did you did you guys get the Cenotaph EP when it came out, or was that kind of hard to find even in the States back then? I never remember seeing it because the like most of these play, we were getting these at um, uh, like Warehouse Records, which is a small stuff. Michigan yeah. chain. It was in the Mich it was in the imports, and I don't think it was really worth their uh, like for the profit margins to really get EPs in very often, especially yeah. like these little slim lines that were like two songs. Maybe if it was like a full sure. you know, five six song EP, mm -hmm. um, but no, I still to this day don't have outside of the Who Dares Wins that has all the EPs put into one. Um, Spearhead was the first uh, EP that I actually got from Bolthrower. I think I have the Cenotaph EP. I think that was a Christmas gift from 
from yeah. Chris. Yeah, Chris found it for you, I'm sure. So, which is, because uh, I still stuck to CDs. So Mark uh, mm-hmm. Mark made the switch over. So I still have all my bowl throwers. I'll never, does, I'll never yeah. sell them. I was going to say, you have you kept bowl thrower. You kept uh, what Paradise Lost. What else did you keep? Carcass, Dismember, uh, Entombed to a certain point. Yep. Some Edge of Sanities, uh, I think. Autopsy, Edge of Sanity. Yeah. Um, I've got about maybe 300 CDs and okay, uh, way more records. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at this point. Um, and then he, the quietest article goes on. It says 1991 was almost uh, certainly the most important year in death metal's history. But whilst F, uh, records like Death's Human, Morbid Angels, Blessed Are the Sick, Suffocation's Effigy of the Forgotten, Gorguts Considered Dead, Atheist's Unquestionable Presence, and Immolation's Dawn of Possession were all pushing the boundaries of the genre in terms of technicality and progressive songwriting, Boat Thrower would make uh, a similarly indelible mark on death metal uh, by pushing hard in the opposite direction here, emphasizing primitiveness and the sheer unstoppable power of simplicity. Arriving just a month after Cenotaph, the Warmaster album would take the heavier sound of that EP to an even more devastating places. The album has a genuinely oppressive weight to it, and it's easily one of the band's most harrowing, atmospheric recordings. If the first two albums were like being stuck in the middle of a firefight, then this is the sound of the aftermath. As the explosions start to subside and you're left to survey the acres of mud and corpses surrounding you in wide-eyed, sweat-drenched horror. The atmosphere doesn't come at the expense of Bolt Thrower's thunderous power, however. In fact, the tighter, colder feel the band achieve here makes their trademark death metal sound even more impactful and destructive. So destructive, in fact, that Slaughterhouse Studios actually burnt down just two weeks after the band finished recording there. (laughs) What Dwells Within is another all-time classic Bolt Thrower tune. Its iconic opening riff, a testament to how much power the band can ring out of just a handful of notes. Lyrically, it finds Willits getting slightly more abstract than the preceding uh, albums, although the band's defiant punk ethos still rings through in lines like, our status is classed through amounting possessions while shrouding the truth through delightful expression. So, Good good rhyming that people don't really do much more anymore. I know. Something I was thinking of like when you're talking about that is how you could, if you want to like, you know, as guys that like to over intellectualize stuff sometimes what (laughs) what 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 if (laughs) listeners will be shocked to hear that what if this progression of albums is actually looking at war from a different level of society Mm. from battle in battle there is no law is you're the guy with a broadsword trying to keep your arms intact to realm of chaos where it's you know it's it's some other guy like in a vehicle to war master seems like you're like you like some type of general or lieutenant, like yeah. orchestrating the battle from afar. And then like fourth crusade is almost like the above the general, like the, the people's kings, in power the that are seeing power it. that are. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, I think that's that could a, be an essay, <laughs> a really cool, cool insight into that for sure. So um, I dig it. I dig it. So let's talk about this music. They just mentioned in the article, what dwells within, um, you know, killer slayer solo in this song. Mm-hmm. Um you know, just I it's it's to me one of the last songs that you would qualify as true like extreme death metal for bolt thrower. It's kind of like the last remnants of of a little bit of that realm sound. You can kind of hear it in what dwells within because a lot of the rest of this album is a little bit more mid paced, but uh yeah. Kind of like that it has one foot in the past and one foot in the future. Uh, I love the I mean as as dumb and kind of pat as it is, I love when they start on the right channel and then the left channel comes in oh yeah that's 
and it's yeah. something like in with like a, a phone you don't really like get as much when you have like a, a, a split up stereo or you're listening to it on headphones or even in a car but let, like you know that when the riff starts up for the like the first measure then the next one comes in it's just something about that just fucking always gets me well it's it's interesting too because a song that unfortunately because i wanted to play so much from fourth crusade but um it's it's one of my alarms is icon from fourth crusade <laughs> that's a great and, song and that's how that song opens with mm -hmm. like one channel and then the second channel comes in and stuff and and that's something bolt thrower does really really well indeed yeah. um then we go from what dwells within to profane creation and i just wrote how good is that opening riff <laughs> just holy it's fucking incredible and that the ride symbol Oh yeah, punctuates that whole thing. It's like I just wrote damn. Andy's on fire here throughout the whole song, so that's probably yeah. what I was referring to. I mean, that opening yeah, riff, but yeah, put Andy Will on display. Yeah, he's and the, the rolls display. and everything is just like fucking crazy. I mean, this is like there's a that opening riff has a. This is where you can hear a little. Uh, I think of the candle mass and and old trouble kind of mm -hmm. stuff in terms of like crushing oppressive doom. Yep. Um, and there's really some like autopsy is fixed kind of crawling death doom throughout this song too. You know, um, I mean, I think that the, there, there's no. Uh, I think it makes sense why Martin Van Drennen was oh, asked to, to take over on vocals. Perfectly with you guys. Yeah, he's got like, that right. Uh, yeah, Asphyx and the and both are have a, a similar. Asphyx is much more kind of, uh, I think, raw, unrefined yes. in a great way. Um, than both were, but as far as like the, the intensity and like their, their kind of mission statements are all the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think Asphyx might have the most albums with death in the cover in the title. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like perfect. Yeah. They're, they're kind of like, they're almost like uh, if you melt it, bolt thrower down, you get kind of Asphyx or something. Yeah. You know, my like my less, favorite less album title of, of them is death. The brutal way. <laughs> yes. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Um, I wrote at the three minute mark of profane creation. I said, you get the slow and, and this is, I want, I want credit for this. Um, the fuck. Yeah. Parking lot brawl groove. Punch a so guy like, in the throat kind of yeah, that like, thing. fuck. Yeah. Like that, like, like did it, that just like slow, like I'm obituary does a lot of that kind of stuff too. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, in profane creation has one of my all time favorite bolt thrower solos, um, at like the four forty five mark, but it's very mm -hmm. short. But yeah. it's like it's very memorable. It's uh, very cool. Um, then speaking of like Andy on display, to me, Andy and Joe really drive Rebirth of Humanity. Um, they're they're kind of like the driving like rhythmic force of this song. And, and mm -hmm. we don't get to talk about Joe a lot on these early records because their bass is so like distorted. And I think uh, someone wrote Flabby. It kind of has that like thick, you know, just big. It's almost know. behind the beat a little bit, but I, I like that kind of vibe like she's so locked in with what andy's doing and andy's never a click track precise mm -hmm. drummer it's all i think all these guys are it's all feel yes and it just they get kind of more refined as they go along but it never becomes like you can risk that kind of like sterility of of being too precise in, yep. in certain types of bands and this the andy and even later on um martin kitty martin. kearns would bring yep. on that kind of like undulation that is like the thing that I love about double bass so much, how it kind of like propels things forward. Well, I think Ken Owen had that too. And I think you mentioned that earlier in the show, yeah. but you know, that was like that je ne sais quoi that like a guy like Ken and, and these unconventional drummers, you know, mm -hmm. guys that just, that just have, learned from a lot of feel. Doing. Yeah, yeah. A lot of feel, mm -hmm. you know, and both those guys kind of came out of punk roots too. And I think that's totally yeah. important, you know? Um, 
you know, Baz and Gavin do some of their best kind of melodic guitar interplay here. Some really cool pinch harmonics. Um, another trippy kind of short guitar solo kind of reminds me like almost like stuff um, you'd hear on like Human from Death a little mm -hmm. bit. Yeah, it's pretty cool. See that? So, so like yeah, so really eerie vibe to this song yeah. too. Um, yeah, but like there, like there's air in the song between instruments, which is something I think Warmaster has was the first because. Realm of Cast was such just a fucking sludge fest of everything was overdone. Yeah. Purposely. Um, Warmaster, things are a little more strategic to use a, a both or a term, more air and everything like between. Um, if there was like a dense part, you know, with the drums, then the, the guitars would be a little more spread out or, or, or Carl's delivery would be a little bit different. Um, but it just seemed much, much more, uh, I think, just refined in, in general. Sure. Yep. No, I think you're, you're spot on with that. So so the, those are the three tunes we're going to hear from Warmaster. And then we're going to hear a pair of tunes from Fourth Crusade, which we'll, we'll talk more about those tunes and that record and set all that up in the next set. Um, we're also going to hear from Kat uh, Gillum again one more time. And she's kind of talks a little bit about Bolt Thor's unique transition uh, to pure death metal out of their kind of roots of, of sort of grindy punk kind of stuff. Um, and she was kind of around when that stuff was sort of happening, living in England and stuff. So... Um, so we'll hear from from Cat, and then we're going to hear a trio of tunes from Warmaster, What Dwells Within, Profane Creation, Rebirth of Humanity, and then a pair of tunes from the Fourth Crusade to end the set, uh, Where Next to Conquer, and As the World Burns. And I think we'll hear from Carl uh, just real briefly about Fourth Crusade before we come back. After In Battle There Is No Law, Bolt Thrower definitely made uh, quite a stylistic change towards a more... A more refined version of their death metal sound um, with Realms of Chaos, which was it, you know, it was still a raw sounding album. You know, it still had that rawness that in battle there is no law had, uh, but minus the, the punkiness of um, the debut album. Um, it definitely had more of a straight-on death metal approach with some, you know, noticeably more slower mid-paced parts thrown into the to the more faster blasting parts, and um, and then they refined things even more on Warmaster, and that album really cemented their signature sound and style and. With the album, Bolt Thrower really came into their own then, and that was definitely a genre-defining album, I think, you know, as far as, you know, mid-paced, heavy, bulldozing, um, grinding death metal goes, you know? I mean, um, it, it had everything, that album. It had the slow, crushing parts, it had the mid-paced you know, bulldozing parts, and then it had the more tempo parts, and also some, you know, really cool guitar melodies and stuff thrown in. Um, you know, one thing that's always been um, at the forefront of Bolt Thrower's sound is the really cool leads and melodies that they mix into the brutality. And, and again, they expanded on that and evolved that with, um, with the Fourth Crusade. And so on and so forth after that album. Uh, Bolt Thrower is such a unique sounding band. You know, back in the 90s, there was there was no other band that sounded like Bolt Thrower. They were 
in their own league. You know, they were in their own style. They had their own sound and style going on. And it's only been in more recent years that, you know, I've heard bands that sound similar to Bolt Thrower, who have obviously taken a huge influence from the signature 90s uh, Bolt Thrower sound and, um, and yeah, copied it. Um, yeah, Bolt Thrower, one of one of the de- one of the best death metal bands ever. What can you say? You know, in my top five death metal bands for definite. Awesome band and awesome lyrics and awesome ethics as well. You know, they did their own tour booking merchandise, self management. You know, yeah. T- you know, it goes back to that DIY punk. Um, mentality you know um so even at the height of their fame they were still you know they might have been on big labels but they were still the day-to-day running of the band was managed by the band you know from merchandise to to tour booking and management and yeah i've got a lot of respect for them for taking that approach yeah hail bolt thrower
Crusade in October, November. So, and then you'll you'll see what it's all about. But it's, it'll surprise people. It's going to be a lot, lot cleaner, a lot faster, a lot slower, but very bulk lower. That was As the World Burns and Where Next to Conquer from the Fourth Crusade. And then we opened up with a trio of tunes, What Dwells Within, Profane Creation, and Rebirth of Humanity from both Thor's Warmaster. And so we also heard there a brief snippet from Carl, where he kind of foreshadows how different Fourth Crusade was going to be. So that interview was conducted, uh, I think, at Headbangers Ball right before Fourth Crusade came out. And he kind of hints there that uh, Headbangers Europe. Headbangers Europe, yeah. Yep. yeah. So that things will be things will be different. So we unfortunately didn't get a whole lot of the good European interviews in our our no, incarnation. In Tomb was on Headbangers, Carcass was on Headbangers, but yeah, it was uh, few and far between. It was it was not a lot, you know. Yeah. Um wasn't a whole lot of money for them to to push. No. But yeah, in Europe, like, you know, Paradise Lost was interviewing typo negative and shit that we never got to see over here. Oh really? Jeez. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Jesus. Um, so those last two tunes, Fourth Crusade, um, you know, we're next to conquer. We heard that first. That's a that's a favorite of mine um, mm-hmm. from this. This is my first Bolt Thrower CD. So I had Realm on tape, and I think I had War Master. I ended up getting it used on CD uh, later, but it was you know I didn't buy it new. Um, and this happened to be used at New Moon. I don't know who sold Fourth Crusade back, but I remember getting it in high school and bringing it over people's houses and just. I just put it on in the background mm-hmm. and it was a good, like people who weren't into like death metal would like perk up. They'd be like, man, this is catchy. What is this? I'm like, Oh, it's bolt thrower. And uh, so this was kind of, for me, the album I used is kind of like a, a gate, uh, a gateway drug or, you know, the way I would do with like blind guardian or, or something like that, where I would just kind of casually have this plane in, 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 ear space of other people in mm-hmm. hopes that they would kind of grab onto it and be like, this is fucking tasty and catchy, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, my, I put like, yeah, refinement level up where their sound basically to where their sound would be the rest of their career. Yeah. I think this is like the first war master, you know, was part to get there, but this is almost the first album that really kind of, this is it. Then they lock in and kind of ref, perfectly refine this format. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, I wrote it in my notes for Where Next to Conquer, and you said it last talk, said this is their Seasons of the Abyss, you mm-hmm. know? And Seasons is, like, more intimately listenable, probably, than South and Rain, in that it just is. You know, it's like, it doesn't mean it's better or it's worse. It just means it's it. that's just its quality, right? It's mm-hmm. just like one of those records that, like, even casual like thrash people probably prefer seasons to like other stuff, you know? Um, I mean, there's air, there's, um, th- there's just like, there's room to breathe in the thing. It's not like this breakneck crazy, like, yeah, people that have listen listen to traditional rock and roll mm-hmm. can lock in easier to this type of music than to, you know, in battle, there's no law or realm of chaos, where it's just a fucking mess Yeah, to, to, to like the, the novice listener, you know? When I, uh, I, I, especially the opening salvo of tunes, those first five tunes, I played mm-hmm. the shit out of. I mean, they just, they like flow like one into another. You know, we heard yeah. Fourth Crusade at the start of the show, which opens the whole album up, but, you know, it just, it's so well crafted. It's so catchy. Um, you know, it's, to me, this is the gateway drug to get people from Slayer to Morbid Angel almost. Mm-hmm. um if that makes yeah. sense yeah. and, and, and yeah. it's just like it's a good middle ground between those because maybe morbid angel is still like a little too scary and this is like 
you liked Slayer and it didn't scare you too much, but like, let's add some gruff vocals and like, but, but yet listenable, catchy. It's not, you know, threatening and, and not threat. I don't want to say that because that makes it sound like it's defanged, but it's, yeah. Um, non-threatening. Well, it's, it's mature enough in its songwriting where they're, they're not out to get you with the, um, they're not like, there for shock value. Or no, there's no like shock. There's yeah. no like blatantly um, extreme elements that are there. Just for, everything's there for a purpose. It's, mm-hmm. it's a mature. It's a mature record. And that last thirty seconds of this song is with Carl's like war cry. That's fucking like catnip stuff, man. Like, oh yeah, it's that's great. You know, um, as the world burns is a kind of a cool. Um, that to me, this song I wrote, it seems like it's almost a template that would influence like a band's like your asphyxes or your hail of bullets or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the, the blueprint yeah, for, yeah, for that like, kind of sound like hail of bullets. That's, that's war metal to me. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's basically hail, like a yeah. derivative of 1914. Yeah. 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 Um, but the, yeah, the lyrics of uh, life expectancy now decreases as atomic warfare rapidly increases. I always fucking love that. Yeah, it's very literal. <laughs> it's yeah, like, <laughs> it's literal, but it's like it's very scientific. Almost, it, it seems you know? like yeah, it's very matter of fact. Mm-hmm. It seems like something, uh, like a high school kid would write, like a a, a smart high school kid would write a, in some type of essay about you know nuclear disarmament or something. For sure, that's <laughs> um, the uh, um, great. Tom G obituary kind of opening riff, um, the, the whole thing. And in fact, um, quietus wrote specifically just about this song. So I, I'll read that and just kind of see what people think this, as the world burns is a great example of this album's overall style with its stirring guitar harmonies, taking on a far more mournful reflective tone than the all out blitzkrieg of the first two records as Willits offers up perhaps the neatest encapsulation of the band's anti-war sentiment so far. Life expectancy now decreases as atomic warfare ah. decreases <laughs> our foolish games. What have we learned? No time for sorrow as the world burns. So yeah, you guys are great minds think alike, Mark. So I, yeah, I, I didn't read the whole thing. So that was, that's funny yeah. that that popped up because it was, that was just something like an evocative lyric. Sure. But it's funny well, that this, this happens like track six or no track five out of 11. Cause as the world burns seems like a closing track. Oh yeah, no. You know? I, I agree. But then, like, then we go into you know this time it's war and ritual and spearhead and yeah, like it just escalates from there. So the it's, ages, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, Andy kind of talked a little bit about this. I think the interview happened like right around the time that this um, al- album came out, so it was kind of pretty fresh in his memory. But they're uh, where where are we at? Did I lose my spot here. Um, oh, they said. Speaking of which. Uh, how much of the war thing in general is going to be on the next album? And he says, well, I mean, the next album is going to be called the fourth crusade, which is our fourth album. And it's sort of like the crusades and the Holy land as well. It's going to be like a futuristic version of the medieval time sort of thing, um, which is cool. You know? And mm-hmm. he says, uh, that, so they ask him, so there's going to be more stuff going on in the mind. And he says, yeah, like, like you say, it's more of a psychological aspect to the thing. 
where Carl always tried to do that anyways. He always tried to put double meaning into his songs. But I mean, most people just get the war side of it, you know. But if you actually read into it, you can see other things like a lot of people do. They'll write to Carl saying, oh, I read this out of the lyrics. And like Carl hasn't even aimed towards that, which is good because it means people are sort of like not just listening to the music. Well, we've always been sort of like war-oriented, not as if we're warmongers or anything. It's just like Carcass being gore. You know what I mean? It's just sort of our thing. <laughs> so No, I think that was that was a thing. Like, uh, you know, Napalm was was definitely picking up the the kind of the, the standard from punk bands. Yeah. And then, then Carcass being this like gore thing to turning into this general decay of society thing. Like everybody had a really unique kind of perspective. You know, in, in between both were having their, like, you know, the, uh, you know, talking about war, its effect, its psychological effects, its uh, uh, inevitable effects on, as, as human beings. Like, all those early Eric bands had really unique takes on whatever their kind of thing was, you know? Yeah. I don't, I don't see that as much. And it's all refinements of that now. But, um, yeah, like th those three bands specifically, it was like, damn, like that, that's, they kind of like milked it for all it was. Yeah. And, they and they managed to make a career much. about it. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And then Andy actually years later, when he's reflecting on the whole discography that he was part of, um, they kind of asked them, you know, they, the, the interviewer said, Fourth Crusade was kind of revolutionary. You slowed down, tune lower your strings, uh, becoming even heavier. Was it your natural evolution or something eventually influenced your play style? He says, in a way, this album was us going back to the beginning, and Battle was more mid-paced and heavy riffs. Fourth Crusade is my favorite album. It's just a great album. It would stand up to any death metal album today. So it's kind of cool. It's Andy's favorite mm -hmm. record uh, that he was kind of part of, you know? I mean, I um, definitely think that um, this might be their high watermark of this of this era. Um, mm -hmm. I think for Victory is good, but I don't think it has the... Je ne sais quoi of the fourth yeah. crusade yeah and I it's think mercenary came back i think because they're i think they're kind of pivoting a little bit with their you've been doing it for this many records mm -hmm. um you know four records like shit where do you go like they didn't they didn't have the sophomore slump they no. almost had like the you know the fifth record was it was good i like a lot of the songs on it but it's not it doesn't have that like holy shit this is just like so relevant and and also the the whole scene had be, been a little saturated. At that I think that's too. probably, I think when you, I, I, I appreciate for victory a lot more now because I yeah. think in context, it's a great record, but in 94, there was such a weird thing happening towards, you know, black metal. And this just, was more of the same, you know? Yeah. But, but good. It was great, but you know, it wasn't as exciting or sexy as, you know, some other stuff that was, happening. but I think now, because you have such a limited supply of bolt Thor records, you can fully envelop yourself in that and be like, Oh, this was still fucking top notch. Awesome. You know, oh, totally. Yeah. There's not a record that's not. It's and just, I think there's like, like different levels of, you know, kind of both or brilliance. Sure. There's just little ebbs and flows, but it's nothing's bad. It's just different. Mm-hmm. Yep. And around the same time, I should, should mention, even though we're not playing anything off of it, uh, that Fourth Crusade came out. They did put out the Spearhead EP um, that had two B-sides from the same recording sessions as Fourth Crusade. Which is, uh, yeah, Crown cool. of Life, uh, Dying Creed, and Lament. Okay. Yeah. Um, How are those? They're, I, they're okay. I mean, Dying Creed is one that um, was probably one of my favorites off the whole thing. But the okay. Spearhead remix was like twice as long. Yeah, I remember that being like seven. It's like, it's uh, 844. 844. It's almost nine okay. minutes long. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Um, Great coverage. I love the fucking cover of that oh, too. That's really cool for sure. <laughs> in uh, in Maniacs, Gavin mentioned to Jeff that uh, he said, "quote We were happy with some of the songs, but the production was the same, and it got really thin and compressed. There was no highs and lows on Fourth Crusade. It was quite a monotonous sound." Colin was always into being over the top with compressing it. And it was something we didn't like. So it's hmm. interesting. Andy loves it. And Gavin kind of has some mixed feelings about it. So I, it's funny because I, as I was reading reviews and kind of getting a, a temperature, that seems to be uh, a, a lot of Fourth Crusade is it's fairly divisive. Really? Yeah. It's like people either fucking love it or they're kind of like, hmm. Like it's not, it's not heavy enough. It's not as like aggressive or, or whatever. It's too mid paced. I mean, it's definitely refined, but what else was, uh, what else was coming out? I, I, <laughs> I, exactly. Exactly. Maybe in context to like some stuff that's being put out today, but in 92, this, like it, it was soothing and just a warm, just, yeah, really, I, I feel like, nice uh, it, I think it, it's, it's like a lot of the, um, Oh fuck! What's his name from Morrisound? Um, oh, Scott Burns. Yeah, Scott yeah. Burns. It's got like like Scott Burns. Like they figured yeah. out a, a formula where you could capture death metal in a way that was more um, consistent. I think, mm-hmm. and that's what like there, there's not as much of the chaos in uh, Fourth Crusade. Yeah, no, I think they kind of figured out like okay, we know how to capture double bass and the fast cymbals and uh, heavy guitars and guttural vocals like, and we can separate them and make it mix together great. Um, but it became like maybe a little too safe. Yeah. And maybe retrospect. if you were like a, if you were like a realm person or like a grind person and you're just like, eh, you know, it's too catchy or something like that. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, yeah. I Cause there's, you know, I think we were different. Um, like me and Chris were not first generation death metal guys, really close to sure. being there, but like those guys that were more into like heavy thrash and then got into this stuff, like. I don't know if they like latched on to certain things more, but we God, we were just on for the ride. Yeah, you were well make this stuff as crazy as fucking possible and we we're gonna and as different as possible. We were totally you, into that. You guys went along for the evolution of a lot of bands, whether it be mm-hmm. Anathema, Amorphous, you know, you name it. Like there's yeah. a ton of bands that started off a certain way and then evolved into something else. Paradise Lost. I mean, the list is it's endless. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Carcass. Um, I mean, all everybody. So so yeah, so I guess it just depends on what you want out of your death metal. Mm-hmm. And maybe certain people want uh, more um, evil incantation kind of stuff out of there. And that's fine. Fourth Crusade is probably not their record. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and yeah. I can't judge them for that. It doesn't mean it's a bad record, but it's just, um, it, I mean, it comes down to personal music's personal taste and like personal, you know, kind of reaction and uh, like what, what kind of like visceral reaction do you get out of stuff? Yeah. And I didn't get a visceral reaction out of DSI or immolation until, you know, recent probably five years ago last decade or so yeah um and like because we we the problem like we went to so many shows that everything was kind of just brutal death metal brutal u.s death metal and that stuff didn't sound good live back in the day no it it sounded fucking terrible nobody knew how to do anything with it yeah and like uh up until like now when you can go see you know like demolich and they sound fucking amazing live when you're two feet from them like that did that was not a thing Mm-hmm. <laughs> back in the day but it's just uh yeah it's, it's it's i think it totally comes down to taste and where your entry point was like we were so well i think the if i have to look back at my kind of trajectory and what made me really it's that fucking we talked about the video a million the hard and heavy video 
the Entombed Left Hand Path video was so kind of abstract and weird, but it but you went through all these different like movements and it it felt like fucking epic. Yeah, and you couldn't really see the band and like the the recording the video recording was way back you know thirty feet back from where the band was playing, and then when they you know kicked into the you know the slower part toward the end with the phantasm shit going on and they actually slow down the head banging and it becomes this like abstract thing as they zoom in like there's this like weird like art house abstraction to that stuff that like really pulled us in a lot more so than cannibal corpse you know so like sure. when we went to see those bands it was like even like dismember or something we were like right up front just staring at them playing because that was so fucking interesting mm-hmm. so yeah it's, it's just like where, wherever your personal kind of entry point is to this stuff Sure. Yep. I, I agree. A um, couple other perspectives. This is from Quietus. Uh, they kind of introduced the record. They say, uh, after discovering their riffs hit even harder at a more mid-paced tempo on Warmaster, the band's fourth record follows this idea through to its logical conclusion and slows right down to almost doom metal speeds. Whilst Andy Wales' rock-solid double kick work is the beating heart of this album, the actual riffs themselves has more, have more in common with the grandiose dramatic atmosphere of Candlemass than they do any of the band's death metal peers. This yearning, almost romantic quality seems to be reflected in the artwork, too, with the band opting for French painter Eugene Delacroix's 1804 piece, The Entry of the Crusaders into Constantinople, instead of anything Games Workshop affiliated this time. And yeah, I think that the cover adds a, a certain... Uh, sophistication to the record you know candle mass used all those painted covers too right so i was gonna say is like that the whole can i'd never would have thought anything about candle mass into bolt thrower yeah um but in, until weird, until right? this episode yeah. yeah yeah and like that the whole painted i like you know the nightfall cover all this shit's like sure looks so yeah, much more creation yeah yeah it's just it's 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 something i never would have thought but now you look at it and it's like it's almost it's it's almost obvious now mm-hmm yep it's funny, um, the, the, the story of this for people, you know, I'll go history nerd for one second, but this is the, the fourth crusade was fascinating because the first three crusades were obviously to um, gain back the Holy Land, which was basically, you know, Jerusalem and, and kind of the, the Levant, uh, you know, area of the ancient, you know, biblical times, mm-hmm. um, which had fallen into kind of Turkish Muslim hands through, you know, the different groups of Turks, the Ottomans, and also um, the Seljuk Turks that were down there. And um, if you've seen like Kingdom of Heaven, you know, it's a pretty good Ridley Scott movie that Mm -hmm. gets into that stuff a bit. The Fourth Crusade was interesting because what it was is the Byzantine Empire, uh, where Constantinople was the the capital of the Byzantines, the Eastern Romans, they they asked for help from the Western Europeans, and they kind of contacted the Pope and said, hey, you know, the, the Muslim Turks are encroaching on Christian Byzantine territory. We need your help, blah, blah, blah. And so that's when they called for, you know, the Pope, Pope Urban II called for crusades and people volunteered and went over into the Holy Land. And that's basically what the first three, three crusades were. And the fourth one was fascinating because the, the Byzantines like called for help yet again. And what some of the kings in Europe and some of the merchants decided is, Let's not fuck around with the Middle East and, and, you know, fighting Muslims. Let's go ransack fucking the wealth of, of our Christian neighbors, Constantinople. <laughs> and so they basically stormed. It was like a surprise attack. It'd be like if during like World War II, like we were like 
fuck it, let's just go take England over. They're already weak enough because the buzz, you know, the the Germans bombed them the flat or whatever. Yeah, yeah or some. So it's it's a really fascinating like kind of like left turn moment in in mm-hmm. the Crusades, and a lot of people don't realize that it's actually Christian versus Christian during the Fourth Crusades. It doesn't actually involve the Muslims that much. But uh, so, anyways, there's shows, my, shows the hypocrisy of yeah. It's just it was really about just conquering and wealth and stuff. Yeah, I mean, we're next to conquer. Here we go. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, Kim Kelly did a little write up, like I said, um, and she here's her one for Fourth Crusade. She said Bolt Thrower changed things up a bit on their fourth full length, aptly titled the Fourth Crusade. Their tunings lowered, the riffs thickened, their songs lengthened, and their lyrics began to focus less on their beloved Warhammer and more on the evils that men do. The record takes a hefty chunk of inspiration from the historical Fourth Crusade and the fall of Constantinople, as well as the songs of warfare that are their bread and butter, and this time around, the modern menace of nuclear death. Their doomy influences become more and more apparent and their use of melody more refined. It was clear that they'd become more proficient and comfortable with their respective instruments, and the results were monumental. The riffs were still massive, the vocals earth-shaking, and overall mood dark, oppressive, and bleak. But Bolt Thrower were growing up and not without growing pains. They moved to Cornwall's uh, Sawmill Studios and enlisted the talents of John Cornfield to record and Alan Fish and Steve Harris to mix the result. Longtime producer Colin Richardson stayed the course and his presence ensured that the Bolt Thrower sound remained mostly intact. Unfortunately, switching engineers and studios resulted in an album that sounded as if it were recorded in a vacuum and a bassist whose presence seemed purely ornamental, a crying shame as Joe's power is unmatched. Some naysayers pinpoint this release as the beginning of their quote rut or their last good album, bestowing upon them the reigning title of the ACDC of death metal. The atmosphere is there though, and the band do a capital job of bringing their listeners straight into the fray. Their strategy is simple yet effective. Their compositions repetitive yet relentlessly creative. On the fourth crusade, Bolt Thrower came into their own, where next to conquer. So there's some I think she she presents some interesting kind of counter um perspectives that some people have, I think. Um mm-hmm. you know, and that tag of the ACDC of of death metal does get thrown at them. And I think you and I have talked pretty openly over the last several years about how as we get older, we've begun to appreciate the sort of genius of simplicity of some of the like control that those acdc records have in that they at first when we were younger we were all about kind of spasticness and and mm-hmm. and yet there's something almost like brilliant about the the way that especially like phil rudd and the stuff that he does on the drums and, and things like that that stuff like i, I, you know? I was <laughs> um every once in a while i listen to the, the bill burr's podcast uh, and he, he went off on on phil rudd how just fucking brilliant the guy is sure so but so on under like you don't if he's not like neil pert you you hear what he's doing you see his kit you know it's it's something like more than normal sure but but phil rudd did stuff that was so it was the swagger of the whole thing it was the like the go back to like the blues of the whole thing was just like if you try to if you try to play that shit you know yeah, it's completely Bill Ward underrated, you know, as a drummer too for that totally. same kind of swing and, and swagger and all that. Yeah. Like try to try to play um Bill Burr was doing like a it was like a, a some kind of charity music event where he, you know, he was playing drums and they were doing ACDC songs. 
He's like, it's the hardest fucking thing I ever did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like to, to, to get in that pocket like Rudd was, it's just like, it's just amazing. Yeah. But it takes um, kind of a special kind of nature. And I think that that's, yeah. that's where I am a bolt thrower is like some people see that as a critique. And I see that as nobody else sounds like bolt thrower and nobody else mm-hmm. sounds like fucking ACDC. Yeah. I and mean, I've, I've heard the same thing about, about you know, Dismember. Uh, there's you know, a handful of bands that have kind of had the same sound their entire career. And I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think there's there's room in this for people to be like Paradise Lost, where they can go from guttural death metal to Depeche Mode, and then back, and then people to do like you know just kind of stay the course. Yeah, you know, Immolation's done just iterations of their kind of mm-hmm. Donna Possession album since, and it's it's equally as interesting to me now. Yeah, like I, not everybody has to be that kind of like crazy innovator. Like you need those those kind of stalwarts that keep this thing going. Yeah. I think you're, you're spot on with stuff here. Um, so we are going to end with uh, two tunes uh, to sort of close out the show. And we have some other things that we'll, we'll attend to here in a second, but uh, the two tunes are ritual and through the ages and um, ritual kind of starts with a awesome kind of death, lack of comprehension riff. Um, even the solos kind of remind me of some, something like James Murphy would do or something like that. Very yeah. heartfelt. Lots totally of air. Get that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's got like room to breathe and stuff. Mm-hmm. And actually when, um, when Jeff Wagner asked Gavin to name, like, you know, some of his favorite bolt thrower songs of all time, he actually mentioned uh, in particular ritual and Carl's vocal performance in the song. So I thought that was kind of cool. Nice. And then um, through the ages. And um, I, I want to read something from quietus that kind of introduces through the ages. And then I actually want to look at the lyrics for a second um, as a history person. But it says, um, it's from the Quietus article, it says, while you get the impression that many self-proclaimed war metal bands merely skim through the history textbooks to pick out the gnarliest looking fonts, both throwers' bleak, oppressive sound is informed just as much by genuine historical conflict as it is the aesthetic of tabletop fantasy games, to the point that their fourth full length, The Fourth Crusade, as much a reference to the capturing of Constantinople in 1204 as it is to the chronological placement in their discography, actually concludes with what could be described as a sonic bibliography in Through the Ages, as vocalist Carl Willits reads a list of real-life battles he has referenced atop one of the band's most ominous riffs. And um, the lyrics, I think, are, are pretty cool um, for people that maybe have not been able to pick up on them and stuff. But it says, from the Roman conquest of Britain in the year 43 AD to 61 AD, to the Saxon raids between 205 and 577 AD, followed by Viking raids, 793 to around 1016. The Norman conquest of 1066, including the Battle of Hastings, leading to the Crusades, which persisted through the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries. The Anglo-French wars of the 12th, 13th, and 14th centuries, culminating in the massacre of Agincourt. The first English civil war of 1215 to 1217, the first of many. The Hundred Years' War from 1337 to 1457, the War of the Roses from 1455 to 1485, the War of the Holy League from 1510 to 1517, another war created in the name of God, the eight, uh, the eight, eight, oh, Eighty Years' War, 1568 to 1648, followed by the Great English Civil War of 1642 to 1651. The American Revolution of seven, uh, 1792 lasting through to 1802. I think they mean the French Revolution. Um, <laughs> yeah, because those years, the, that's the years of the French Revolution. That's weird. Okay. Uh, I'm just reading off Discog, or uh, not Discogs, but uh, Metal Archives. So maybe, I don't okay. know. 
Um, and then followed by the Napoleonic Wars of 1803 to 1815, ending in the Battle of Waterloo. The wars on both the Zulus and Boers through around 1879 to 1902, World War I, 1914 to 1918, the so-called War of All Wars, the Great War, millions slaughtered in the mud of France. World War II, 1939 to 1945, the war that should never have happened, a prime example of man's inhumanity, concluding in the bombing of Japan. Vietnam from 56 to 75, the war that America will never forget. More recently, the Falkland War of 1982, the Gulf War of 1991, mankind's destructive nature throughout the ages. That uh, man's inhumanity to man line? Yeah. Uh, I use that for a piece I did in 1992 for my art class. <laughs> the, it was a sculpture of a bunch of different, you know, different ethnicity faces on this goofy globe thing. Yeah. That I, that I submitted to the, uh, I think it was, it might have been Engler at the time was our governor. Yeah, I think it was. It was like a, uh, it, it was like the governor's art prize that I won some incarnate, didn't win any money or anything, but that that's the, what I got that term from and then turned it around into art <laughs> and got some kind of shitty reward that's, so that's cool yeah <laughs> i always you know, tried to to pull that you know my love of this shit into stuff that was a little bit more acceptable to other people where they're like oh shit this this stuff actually has something to say yeah it's not just garbage death metal or you know whatever they dismissed yeah, it it's, it's not like it's not like um cutting up bodies and you know. or, or like it's not twisted sister like these people yeah. like there's more to it it's not just like partying and you know that kind of shit so it makes me it bums me out because in uh 10th grade Miss, mrs lukowski's class um we did a poetry project that i've mentioned before and i did it on war and death and i used a lot of slayer lyrics and some other things and i don't think i knew who bolt thrower was yet in 10th grade unfortunately so because yeah. <laughs> uh, i would have used a whole bunch of their songs it would have been kind of perfect you know? yeah so um I did so, surprise yeah. your dead in my, uh, I think it was my oh from Faith No More sophomore year yeah. poetry thing. Yeah, that's cool. I dig it. <laughs> um, we did have uh, two new patrons, Mark. I wanted to mention um, one is from uh, Richard Martin. Uh, became a ten dollar patron, and he wrote us a little letter on the Patreon site. Mm -hmm. uh, he says this is uh, this is the heavy metal hippie from Twitter. Uh, remember, I read one of his letters in the nail bomb episode. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And I didn't know his name. He says otherwise known as Richard. He said it took me long enough, but I finally uh, you know joined you on Patreon. I sincerely owe you guys a debt for helping. Uh, to fill in the gaps for my 20-year pilgrimage in the non-metal wilderness. Looking forward to getting more engaged with your current content. So thank you, cool, Richard, thanks, man. For, uh, for signing up. And then we just had one a couple days ago. Jason Hinton uh, signed up uh, to be a patron, and he wrote us on Patreon as well. He says, guys, first-time Patreon, long-time listener, long-time Decibel subscriber, and long overdue showing this great podcast the love it deserves. Even better from two guys with very similar tastes in my uh, peer group. Uh, I'm 47 here. <laughs> so, yep. Cool. Yeah. We're definitely uh, we're definitely age, the, the, the greatest middle-aged uh, podcast that's out there, you know. I, I um, think as far as middle-aged men are concerned, I think we might be we, we might we've be cornered the market. Yeah, we've we've killed it. It's probably um, 95% of our market. We've, <laughs> we've got a couple ladies that like it, but Yeah, uh, we have some younger people too. Uh there's some okay. younger, yeah. Like I said, some of my students listen and some of the people in the 20s and stuff, but yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, but it's but it's also like who who has the time? I know, I know. Or who makes the time? Like we got like long road truckers or we've got yep. uh you know, my, yeah, one of my favorite have desk jobs, you know. Oh, totally. One of my one of my favorites was I don't remember which episode it was now, but 
there was a guy who was like, hell, it might even been on like Facebook or something on, on our group. Yeah. I was like, yes, my, my wife and daughter are out of town. I get to listen yeah, to a seven-hour podcast on something. I, I can, Albert, like, knock it all off in one weekend instead of having to, like, split it up, you know? Yeah, Albert from Decibel <laughs> does it when he grocery shops, I know. Uh, yeah, I'll get random texts from him about stuff, you know, like, oh, man, I finally just got through the whatever the fuck it, it might have been at the time. But sure. it's like, yeah, each episode takes me at least several weeks to get through. So funny. So if you want to become a Patreon, and we hope you do, we hope you want to support what we're doing. Um because we do this for free um and this so is the pbs the, model but we don't get anything from the government yep we uh we yeah so we put a lot of time and energy and research into this stuff um we've spent a lot of money to to you know track down old terrorizer issues and to get zoom accounts going and and different Find new machines and, yeah, yeah exactly it's, it's so so it. you know i think you know five bucks ten bucks is is very very little to ask for for the kind of content that we're giving you and this is the first of two parts from uh bolt thrower so um, well think of like um your you know everybody has most people have netflix mm -hmm. how many hours of programming on netflix do you consume a month for the price sure and then yeah. how much do we give you that you actually want to hear that's it. Yep. It seems like it's a pretty like, you know, I, I think, think they're they might be fifteen ninety nine or I something. Think 15 now. Something. Yeah. So I think it's totally fair to ask, you know, five, ten bucks. Uh, yeah. And we're a we're a two man operation. Yeah. Two man yeah, exactly. We don't have a producer or any we are the producers, well, you know, you, we're the editors. Uh, we're doing all the all the listeners that are all the patrons are our producers. Yeah. Uh, they're they're the ones helping produce the shows, getting us that a little bit extra. We're we're putting the money up up front, but they're helping us recoup. Yep. It's, uh, it's a great, it's a great system. So if you'd like to become a patron, you can go to www.patreon.com uh, forward slash uh, Requiem podcast um, and sign up to become a monthly uh, person there. If you don't, if you're, if you're uncomfortable with the Patreon model and you'd like to uh, make a PayPal donation or something like that, um, you know, just reach out to us on social media. You can find us, uh, Jason and Mark on Facebook and, and get us on messenger there. Uh, you can tag, you know, get us on Twitter uh, at Podcast Requiem. You can get us on Instagram, Requiem Metal Podcast, and just be like, hey, I really like what you're doing. I don't really want to do Patreon, but uh, I'd like to do a donation. We've had plenty of people do that. Uh, Albert mm -hmm. did one. Uh, my, our friend Luke from Taiwan has done that. Um, Andreas, Andreas has done that. Boltor yeah. fan number one. Uh, yeah, I was going to say uh, Andreas. Number two, I would say. I, I, yeah, I think Andreas. <laughs> Andreas, uh, you know, kind of, in a lot of ways, inspired probably the, the this episode in a way. We always knew we were going to go back and do redo some of these old episodes, but um, I think his passionate, you know, stuff definitely kind of uh, did that. So, yeah, it was it was it's always been on his mind for the last uh, you know twelve years or something. For sure, for sure. And I think you know, speaking of which, I think this would be probably the time for the the little surprise mark that I wanted to. Sort oh of yes, let's with. let's see how this works out. Yeah, let's see. Hopefully, hopefully you can hear all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's going on. So, hello, hello. Is this Andreas? Yes. Yes. How are you guys doing? Good. Mark, can you hear Andreas on your end? I can. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, um, Andreas, we are just wrapping up part one of Bolt Thrower, and Mark didn't know we were calling you. I told him there was going to be a surprise. <laughs> um, uh huh. But you had reached out to me and said that you, you know, you wrote a lot of thoughts about Bolt Thrower and what the band meant to you and, and kind of how they were a, a big gateway and stuff. And we, you and I have been talking the last few days and you're like, you know, if you just want me to record something, I can do that. Or what about calling in? And I was like, let's fucking do that. We haven't had a Patreon kind of call in. And in a lot of ways, 
you kind of sponsored this episode with a with a pretty significant donation. So I thought, why not fucking bring in uh, Patreon, you know, Andreas, and and have him kind of say his words. So welcome, welcome to the Requiem for the very first time officially on on air. So yeah, great to great to hear Thank from you. Thank you very much, guys. Um, um no, yes, go, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I you you know. Tell us kind of how you got into, you know, metal and where you discovered kind of Bolt Thrower, because I think that's kind of an interesting sort of story. And it was one that kind of surprised me, if I'm being honest, and I'll, I'll tell you why uh, after you tell the story. And, and kind All of right. tell us, because you, you live in Alaska, but you were born in Spain, so you have a, an interesting journey as, as just a metalhead in general. So so give us a little little bio on, on uh, Andreas and his, his metal, metal beginnings. <laughs> All right. Well, I actually was born in Uruguay. In oh, South Uruguay. America. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Uh, when bad. I was eight, my family moved to Spain. That's what it was. Okay. Sorry about that. Yeah. And when I was 11, uh, I went with my mom in Spain. The street markets are very popular. And you buy all kinds of stuff in there, including music. And one day I went with my mom to a street market, and as she was looking for ABBA cassettes. <laughs> um, nothing wrong I, with ABBA. <laughs> nothing wrong. I love ABBA. Yeah. I love ABBA. <laughs> um, I was looking at cassettes, and I ran into what I later discovered what it was, but into the cover of Mob Rules by Black Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Nice. I had no idea who those guys were. I didn't know what music was there, but I saw that cover, and maybe you, Mark, particularly can is, uh, see how what shocking that was for me. And since you're an artist, I, I gave the cassette to my mom, and I'm like, I need you to buy me this. I need to get this. <laughs> um, and my mom has always been a very open person. She never judge my taste. She never uh, say no to anything. So she bothered without asking any questions. I so think that's I home. think that's key. That's something Mark and I can relate to that we had very understanding parents that kind of helped nurture our, our love for this kind of weird stuff, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. They just want to make sure we're everything's good. And then yeah. it's everything, yeah. You're yeah, not worshiping that. Satan or anything or yep. killing animals and nope. Okay. Nope. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah, no, for sure. Like I know a lot of a lot of parents of friends of mine that they would have never bought that tape. Yeah. Just because of what they had on the cover. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I got home, I put the tape on the stereo, I turned the volume all the way up. I had no idea what was gonna come through those speakers, and then turn off the night, which is I don't know if you guys agree, but for me, one of the best openers Great. ever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it starts to like blast through the speakers, and it blew my mind. It <laughs> literally like blew my mind. I was wow. <laughs> uh, so that was like a you can call it I don't know an epiphany moment, a revelation moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Changed my life. Um, for the next few weeks. All I did was to listen to that cassette. And after asking several people, I found out where the record store that had that type of music was in my city. What city in Spain did you live in? It's Alicante. It's in the Mediterranean coast, south of Barcelona. 
Okay. About okay. 300 miles south of Barcelona, but the same line of coast. Gotcha. I've swam on um, that coast before, so it's it's beautiful. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a touristic place. Uh, millions of people go there every summer. Um, so anyways, I, I go to that record store after a few weeks, and I had no idea what to ask for. I had no idea what bands to look for. I just wanted to hear something that shocked me like the first, that the Black Sabbath tape. Yeah. And as I am there, uh, I don't know how long it went by, Overkill starts to play. From Motorhead, right? From Motorhead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that is another intro that it gets engraved in your head. Oh yeah. Like the double bass. Right away. Yeah. Go ahead, sorry. No, the double bass kick. You know, that was kind of iconic. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So I I went to the guy on the to the clerk and say, I want to buy that. <laughs> and we talked for a few minutes. Uh, and I told him what had happened with Black Sabbath, that mother has seen, and he sold me two other records. And listen to this, which is to this day my favorite live record of all time. Oh, it's a good one. Uh, and made in Japan by Deep Purple. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So that was like, like I said, like my first introduction to the music, and then like I guess that like you guys did and everybody else did, started to discover bands, uh, look for everything, talk with friends, and I went to, you know, Metallica, Sabbath, Maiden, ACDC, Zeppelin, everybody. Um, but to be honest. And even though I'm a huge Metallica or Slayer fan, I never match those two moments when I listen to Mob Rules and when I listen to Overkill. So it's almost like you were chasing that that high again, that that feeling, that first like you know rush that you got from those those albums that you first heard, right? Definitely, absolutely. And in fact, I remember reading magazines about this band is going to release this record and going to buy it. For example, I bought the first copy of Appetite for Destruction that was sold in my city. Oh, wow, cool. The, <laughs> the guy knew that they were, at this point, a few years after, the guy from that store and I, we, we, I had gone there hundreds of times. Uh, and I told him, when this comes out, give it to me. And I bought it. It was great, and instead, but it wasn't the same. Sure. And with, like that, with like I said, with many other records. Until about 10 years ago, I ran into you guys. Ah. Um, I was uh, I was playing poker. I'm a professional poker player. Oh, wow. That's okay. what I do for a living. Um, and I was playing online back then. Uh, and listen, in the computer, I was always looking because I spent many hours in the computer, I was looking for stuff to listen to. And I started to search for heavy metal podcasts. And I hear a few, but nothing really. And, and then I ran to Requiem. And when I opened and saw the episodes, that band name, Ball Thrower, I was like, wow, that sounds fucking amazing. Like, I, I knew nothing about death or black metal. I believe that I had already mentioned that in the past to you guys. I was completely 
apart from that world. I didn't know what to listen to. So I I was completely stranger to it. So this is the so, part that blows my mind uh, because I I had just assumed you had always been a bolt thrower fan and then yeah me too discovered art and and so when you told me this I was like holy shit we introduced you to this band that's crazy yeah. wow yeah continue sorry I just wanted to tell you that was the part that really surprised me the most no, yeah. keep in mind this Spain is power metal territory oh yeah, yeah. yes. Uh, like Manowar are God in Spain. Yeah. Which I like the first few records, but sure. that's it. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. And you know how I feel about other bands. Oh, you in love Queensryche. Case, yeah. Andreas, the biggest uh, Queensryche fan out there, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, so I just, I saw the ball thrower. I had heard the name I saw in the past, but never listened to the band. And you guys started the episode with Cenotaph. Okay, that's what we started I, with. Okay, okay. <laughs> and just those first seconds, I even though it was only like ten seconds, I'm like, oh my god, what is this? This is like, this is like you say, Jason, the high. Like, I'm like this is what I've been looking for. I listened to the episode, and every second of music in that episode, I was like, this is the band I always wanted to listen to. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> like, all like bands had something that was missing for me. Like, like there was always something. And with Ultra, was it was perfect for my ears. I'm not saying they are the best out there. I'm saying for me, they are. Mm-hmm. They made the exact music that I always wanted to listen to. I get that. Yeah, they kind That's of awesome. that that yeah. niche, you know. Um yeah, I kind of talked about a song. It was earlier when we were recording the episode. I said, this is a textbook. Like you you put this, the last like minute of the song in a museum for death metal. This is like a perfect death metal moment. I'll have to see what that was, but continue. Sorry, Andrew. Yeah. No, well, and basically that's uh, from that moment on, I started to, I made sure that I bought every single piece of music they ever did, they ever made. And also there was, something else that caught my attention and it's uh, in my two favorite artists of all times have always been Lenny and Johnny Cash. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Both men in black. Both men in black. Very authentic. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. The authenticity, the honesty, the integrity part. Yeah. Like that for me was fundamental. And these guys have this motto in a world of sacri- of compromise, some don't. That that caught my attention like right away, like immediately. And, like these guys are like that perfect. Like they were made for me to discover them. <laughs> Well, and they never really compromised their sound to trends or anything like that either, never. which is kind of like Lemmy and Johnny Cash are kind of like stick to their guns kind of characters, you mm-hmm. know? Yes, and not, not just that. My impression, which Leia can tell you as a story about it, was also that they never sold out for money, not just musically, but I had the impression that they never did something just for the financial gain of it. Yeah. Yeah. They're I very DIY 
with like how they did their t-shirts and, and merch and things like that. Yeah. yeah. Their, their ethics in general, they, they would, they would like say, fuck the money. This is not our ethics. Yeah. They wouldn't do <laughs> tours if like, they didn't like the corporation behind the tours and, and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. For all I read about them, match that impression. And that for me is very important. Like it's fundamental. Um, and then I have, uh, if I have a minute, I can tell you a couple of stories related to that. Absolutely. You, sure. you kind of sponsored this episode with that uh, donation <laughs> you gave. So this is your, your forum. Absolutely. Okay. Well, the first one, after Paul Thrower disbanded when uh, he died, um, Carl Fons Memoriam, which is a great band. I have to say, really like Memoriam. Yep. Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about them in part two, for sure. Oh, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised because they're really good. So anyway, they form Memoriam, and they make a post on Facebook announcing that they have their first T-shirt. Mm-hmm. And I ordered two of them, and I sent a private message on Facebook to the band saying that they have a pen in Alaska and that I was honored to support them, blah, blah. And a couple of weeks later, I received the T-shirts, a memoriam sticker, and a handwritten note that they posted in the Facebook page a few days ago. Jason, I'm sure you saw it. Oh yeah, yeah, you tagged that. That that was to you. I remember. That's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. Well, Carl personally sent a note thank- thanking me for supporting the band, which I thought was really cool because you know not. Very few people would do that. He, you know, he sold two t-shirts. He know that I spent two thousand dollars with the band, mm-hmm. so that was really cool. But then, on December two thousand nineteen, he did something that was much more cooler than that. He made a post on Facebook saying that he had found at his house the last two board thrower t-shirts that he had. And you guys know for how much that merch goes online. (laughs) Yeah. I looked, I looked last week on eBay. There was like three, 300, 400, $500 for shirts. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's bad, Mark. It's about the the most extreme you're going to find of any band right now. Well, last time I saw them, I I bought everything they had. I know you were smart. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't have the opportunity of seeing them live, so I never got access to their, their merch. The merch, yeah. yeah. So Carl made that post saying, I have these two t-shirts, I'm going to put them on eBay, and he sent him a private message and saying, I want one of those, and I pay whatever you want for it. And I imagine, you know, the guy, the singer of the band, yeah. He must be aware of what a legend he is. He can ask a decent chunk of money. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> for for a t-shirt, you know. And a couple hours later, I have my prize. And when he said to me, I really saw that he was fucking with me. Because he sold me the t-shirt with the shipping to Alaska, which is not cheap, <laughs> for 77 pounds. Wow. Which is like a hundred bucks. Yeah. And that for me was like, this guy just, you know. Some integrity there. Yeah. Yeah. He proved to me 
that he really speak to what he says he is. Uh, and he sent me the t-shirt, and once again, I opened the envelope, and I have another memorial sticker, this time signed by the entire band, and another handwritten note from him saying that I'm such a big fan, blah, blah, blah. And that, that was very touching and important for me. So, yeah. That's I great. I am the biggest sport thrower fan out there at this moment. Yeah, I think you and Mark are probably the two that I, uh, I I've ever encountered. So you guys are in a, a an elite club, and I'm I'm not too far, but I'm not going to pretend I I have the the level. You guys both have tattoos. Uh, bolt I, got, throw I have three bolt throw tattoos. <laughs> you got three? Three. Well, I, one is it's it's on my uh, the top of my hand. I have the big the chaos eye star. Um, I think that was uh-huh. on the back of oh god, what was that? The Spearhead EP maybe. Um, and then it goes up into, I've got like some realm of chaos stuff that goes up to my forearm as well. And then I, my, the first tattoo I ever got was a chaos star, um, that was on my uh, shoulder that actually got covered, but you can still see it with the repulsion head. (laughs) (laughs) All my tattoos are are death metal tattoos. Cause you have, you have a couple, right? Yeah. You have two, right? They are combined. Uh, one of them is the in a world of compromise, some done with the star that uh, Mark was mentioned in the middle. Yeah. Around it, there are fractions of the realm of chaos uh, cover, and on the other side of my arm, we have in, I have enlarged the Benz logo with this shield you can call. And black and red, and it covers half of my arm. Wow, it's all combined together, but these are like two different images. That's awesome. Yeah, well, you need to send us a picture of that. I'd love to, yeah, no doubt. See it. We'll, we'll post that someday. We'll do like one of those predator uh handshakes, yeah, where we, <laughs> we get to see our both of our uh get, get our tattoos together. Handshake. Yeah, that'll be the dream, man. That'll be the dream. So, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But, okay. but but we really appreciate uh, obviously everything that you've done, and um, I know you have kind of a surprise that you want to kind of talk about as well uh, that you you hinted to me, and it's going to be a surprise I'm sure to Mark and to to our listeners and stuff. So so go ahead, the the floor is yours still, Andreas. All right, thank you, thank you. Okay, I have hey, Mark. I have not had interaction with you, but I had with Jason in the past. He knows how important you guys have been for me. Not just for Thrower, there's a lot of bands that right now are some of my favorites that I would not have, I would have not discovered if it had been for you guys. Uh, Dissection, uh, which is another band that blows my mind. Emperor, Mayhem, all those bands now mean a lot to me and they were not there before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have always admired the amount of work that you guys put into this. I can only imagine that, uh, particularly since you did these uh, neurosis episodes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine that a four-hour episode takes, <laughs> I don't know, 10, 15, 20 hours of research. Or more, yeah. Uh, there was a lot for that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you guys... Mm, seem a little bit shy 
when it comes to the financial department. <laughs> for, yeah, we're we're not good at begging for money. We're and, modest. Uh, yeah, we're too <laughs> modest sometimes, for sure. Yes. Yeah. But you know what? You don't go to the bank and say, listen, I'm doing such an amazing podcast. Can you just take care of my mortgage because I'm such a nice guy? Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> so uh, I, I wear the badge of being the first patron you guys have. And I believe I am the highest monthly contributor to the, to the podcast. Yep, for sure. Yeah. So I want to send, I don't know, you can call it a challenge or make a, an offer to the audience, to the rest of people listening to this whenever they listen to it. Um, my monthly contribution to the podcast is 20 bucks. It has always been 20 bucks. In the first month, first 30 days after releasing this episode, if anybody wants to top that, if anybody says, okay, you know what, I'm going to send them 25 bucks a month, I will double that amount. And I will keep it for as long as that person does. So you're going to match, you're, you'll you'll double somebody that matches what you're donating right now or goes above what you're donating. The monthly contribution. Okay. The monthly contribution. For but the f- then we have the one-time donations. Okay. And this is what I think that for people maybe is the easiest thing to do. You know, say, you know what, I just listened to an amazing episode. I'm going to send these guys X amount of money. Whatever money you guys receive for the for a month after releasing this episode, I would also want to match it. So you'll match any one-time donations that come out after the, the bolt thrower stuff? Yes, sir. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. So hopefully this incentivates people to say, okay, you know what? Whatever I do, it's going to be double, so I'm going to do it. Because you guys deserve it. Like, you guys really deserve it. Oh, I know we deserve it. (laughs) Yeah. I think Mark knows we deserve it, but it's, it's, yeah. But but what what makes it is that that you think we deserve it. Yeah. Andreas, that that means 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 a lot to us. Yep. Means the most. Thank you so much. So that's yeah. that is uh, that is incredible, Andreas. And Andreas has even kind of commented that, and this is something for Mark and I to kind of talk about uh, down the road about doing almost almost sort of what you did here, where you almost sponsored an episode with a with a pretty sizable donation, um, almost kind of putting it out there for for people to spend a certain amount of money to get us to do maybe a band or an album that they really, really want. That's kind of tailored to, to, to their stuff that they think maybe Mark and I wouldn't do perhaps, um, you know, you were kind of talking to me about that too, right? Yes. Andreas? Uh, absolutely. I can, I can think of several bands that you guys have not done yet that have a following out there and whose fans I would have paid. You guys have had a, a price tag for this episode, I would have paid it. Yeah. <laughs> like 100% I would have paid it. And I can only imagine for what I read other people post in the forums that it would be the same case for all guys. For, for certain for, bands, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. For certain bands. And you need to, I mean, there's podcasts out there who have very small followers very small amount of followers 
who do that and they finance themselves. It's yeah. not about getting a Ferrari in your house. It's about <laughs> paying, getting some money back. Paying sure. bills. <laughs> yeah, paying, paying bills and, and affording the CDs and the stuff. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've, I've talked to, to Mark a little bit about this before. I don't know if we've done it on the air, but the, the wrestling podcast I listen to, they do something they call the hopper. And basically, um, they'll do a hopper episode like every two or three episodes where basically there's a week to, for bidding and it's a bidding war. And whoever has the highest bid gets to pick the wrestling pay-per-view for the guys to research. And uh, those bids get like absurd. Some of them get like four, five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred dollars. And I'm like, what? Somebody's paying seven hundred dollars to hear a podcast on 1994 SummerSlam. But but you, like you said, there's there's passionate people out there that really hopefully like what Mark and I do with the deep dive and the research and stuff like that. And so, yeah, it's definitely something um, we're not we're not uninterested in that idea. We would just need to kind of figure out how we wanted to do something like that. I think uh, so it still fits with the ethics because uh, we're kind of like bolt thrower in that we have a very uh, strict kind of ethical way in which we've always wanted to do Requiem, which is fairly uncompromised, right? Playing full songs, not having advertisements, you know, for sure. And we don't want to also do like anything where it's like, you give us like 10 grand and we're going to do a disturbed episode or something like that. I don't, I don't really yeah. want to do that. We'd have to set like parameters. Absolutely. For but, sure. But you, I mean, you guys haven't really proved yourselves. Yeah. It's not like you guys have been doing this for six months and now it looks like a money grab. No, yeah. you've been doing it for many years. There are hundreds of episodes to prove it. Uh, nobody will think, oh, there's, yeah no it's good to hear it from the fan base on that level because i think sometimes we're our probably harshest critics when it comes to that stuff um and so to hear you say that is 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 good and um so i guess the people that are listening to this you know give us some feedback about that idea that andreas kind of put forth and um if that's something like there's other people out there who would be interested in something like that maybe we can Maybe we can do something around Christmas every year or whatever. Like once every two months, we do like a, a bidding war episode or something like that. Um, you know, we just we also don't want to lose sight of like what the stuff that we want to do as well. So it'd have to be yeah. obviously balanced with all that. But um, but definitely well, on, on that, I, I think it would be it's fairly clear to me that the bands that people would request are in your ballpark. Yeah, I think yeah. so, like too. The sister, well, I don't think we have a lot of disturbed fans. Ask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and nobody's going to ask for a Queensryche episode. Oh, I they know. might. Oh, they might. Would I, you, I love the first record. Would you listen to a Rike episode that uh, somebody gave us, like, hundreds of dollars to do? I mean, I would do I a Queensryche episode no matter what. You guys didn't make any money, <laughs> but uh, I would be urging every state of <laughs> I hate those guys. <laughs> like... The job state is. It was you, Bart, that say that he was the most punctual face in the world, right? True, true. Yeah, it was. It was also. Uh, I think our friend in ta- uh, Taiwan, Luke, um, said something about the real world song. He was. Uh, he was pretty critical of it as well. I can't remember what he said. He's, it was a funny comment, but yeah. So it's yeah, a, it's I, all right. I know I'm alone in my Queensrÿche love, and I'm okay with that. I don't need to do a Queensrÿche episode, you know. I, I'll so. be honest, my only pet peeve with you is that band. You have played some music, you have mentioned some bands that I'm like, oh my God, it's okay. <laughs> but those guys, I really cannot wrap my head around them. Never have. 
I think it was you that said that that Hammerfall song, that new Hammerfall song we played, was oh, the yeah. worst thing we've ever played on Requiem. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. what was that song, Mark? The newer one that you played on the the power. Oh, metal the, that's the one where they they're like going through the whole. Like, they're like name dropping like Swedish metal bands. Yeah, the history of Swedish metal. Yeah, but it's they pretty have, fruity. It's, it's not a oh, great Hammerfall song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. I don't know. Maybe. Having grown up in Spain, being exposed to all those bands 24-7. You got trauma from pow- too much power metal, right? I oh, think, man. Know. Like I said, I, I listen, I like some Manowar records, but the favorite Manowar song in Spain is Carry On. Oh, yeah. That's like, <laughs> that's the era I'm not really into. I like their first four, and then I'm pretty much off the Manowar. Yeah, from yeah there. it's like uh, first couple. Sure. They're good. Yep, yep. So... Well, that's awesome, Andreas. I hope you've enjoyed uh, your your. Hey, you're famous now. You're you're on the air. Yeah. You're uh, you're our first Patreon to make a, a live appearance. I, I didn't know how this would sound, uh, you know, so I, I didn't really tell Mark what we were gonna do. So I kind of sprung this on him. So, uh, you know, I'm sure it sounds good. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, that's I awesome. Have you my action, people can actually discern what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. I know you were kind of nervous because you're, you know, ESL a little bit with with you know how your English would come across, but I think. I think I think people are very clear, and people will, will enjoy hearing from a fan like this and hearing. Yeah, I mean, ESL is my favorite people. type of English. Yeah, <laughs> to be honest, like every every band that is like that comes up with the best lyrics, in my opinion, do not have English as their first language. Yeah, kind of a different lens. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. So, um, Andreas, anything else before we uh, we let you go that you want to share with us or uh, get across? No, just. Thank you guys. Like really, I am the one that says thank you to you guys for what you do. Well, and I hope that these two bolt thrower episodes that we do are are up to par for your fandom, and that we hopefully unlock some some doors that even as a, a, a hardcore fan that maybe you didn't know about or appreciate about the band. And uh, that's that's our that's our best bar that we can set to for ourselves. So. Sounds awesome. Sounds great, man. All right. Thank you, Andreas. Take Thank care. You so much. We'll, uh, care. we'll be talking soon. Thanks again for the challenge. We appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. All Bye. right. Talk soon. Bye. All right. There you go, Mark. It's a good so, one. Uh, good one. He's, I, uh, he's been my compatriot in the, most of the forums for many years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I knew he, he had told me about this idea of the challenge and stuff. And I was like, okay, I think this will be cool, but I think it'd be cool for you to announce it like on the air so that people can yeah. hear it and stuff like that. And so um, I guess, you know, hopefully we just kind of told you how to become a Patreon, uh, you know, again, if you're if you're ready to sort of square square up uh, and do your part to become a, a requiem patreon now's the time to do it because it's going to benefit us and maybe we can invest more in some cooler things and do more research and it it's certainly uh i don't know or, you know just motivating. help just helping us out for yeah for the the time we put in that we take away from other things too is yep. it's uh it means a lot that andreas would um would bring that like people that already pay money every month yeah. to listen to our content or not to listen to our content, but to kind of give us a, like a, just say like, Hey, we appreciate your content to make that of, type, that type of challenges is, 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 is really great. Yeah. And it, it reminded me of um, like a NPR or PBS kind of fundraising, like a matching funds kind of thing. I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, this is, this is right up our alley. You know, we're not, we're non-commercial. So we, we do this for free. We don't have advertising. Um, although I think 
they put ads at the beginning of our Apple podcast downloads, but that's not us. So just, so yeah, you know, we, we don't, we don't, we don't get, get a cent from, from any of that so. shit, but, um, so we apologize. I always just hit the fast forward 30 seconds at the start and then I don't have to deal with that shit on Spotify. Um, you don't have to listen to it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, so yeah, so it sounds like, uh, there's two challenges that he threw down. Basically, um, he'll match, uh, people that, um, become monthly Patreons, um, that are equal to his $20 a month, uh, for as long as you want to do it. So if you want to do it for three months and then lower down to 10, he'll match you on those three months that you do the, the 20 or $25 or something like that. If you want to um, bankrupt double. Andreas, that's yeah. You, yeah. you can try. Well, yeah. You know, he must be doing pretty well with the professional poker. So maybe we should, maybe we should take uh it'll be like um hangover. We need to take Andreas to like Las Vegas. Like uh, we can give him our Patreon money to actually reinvest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Put it on black, you know, like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah always, that'd be, that'd be pretty just awesome. Like Wesley Snipes. Yep, yep. Um, and then the other one is if anybody does a one-time donation, um, they just want to do that. He'll match that as well. So that's uh, very, very awesome. Very generous. Uh, appreciate it. Yeah. There's. I mean, the the thanks. Uh, you know, we can't can't say thank you enough. So. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, beyond Patreon, like I said, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash Requiem podcast, or you can go to Requiem, uh, metal.com, um, and click on the Patreon link there. And then you can get signed up that way. If you're kind of confused on how to do it or, or something like that, just shoot us a message, um, on, you know, Facebook or Twitter or something like that. And I can, you know, send you the link, uh, if it, for some reason my directions aren't clear, um, if you want to give us some feedback, you can shoot us an email at requiempodcast at gmail.com. You can send us messages on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, Mark and Jason. If you do become a Patreon, you get into our exclusive uh, Facebook page uh, where you know a lot of discussions like this are kind of happening that are exclusive to supporters of the podcast and um, even contributors like Chris is in there and Albert's in there and um, you know Joseph Schaefer and a few other kind of people that we have as guests quite often are in there. I think Nick Green's in the, in the page too. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so we, we do love feedback. Uh, we like to read letters and things like that. Uh, we'll probably do that in part two if we get some feedback um, in time or maybe some feedback about the nail bomb or the fudge tunnel episodes or things like that. Um, I also want to say too, we didn't really, uh, I think I was coming back from Italy and um, just kind of forgot to mention it. But um, I feel like, you know, as a, as a hardcore death metal fan um, and, a, and a Michigan native that um, this is a, you know, hopefully a fitting tribute to, to Trevor from, from Black Dahlia Murder, who um, was a friend of the Patreon or of the podcast, too. And um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I knew the guy personally. It was a, a fucking blow. Yeah, um, really, really tragic. We didn't get a chance to really talk about it on any of the episodes because of when we record it and stuff like that. But um, yeah, that's it's uh, yeah, yeah, this is like the God, this last year, like, you know, the third person that I've known personally that um has passed either you know by their own hand or by yeah. fate but um yeah we're getting to that age and uh just just uh, anybody that's that's out there that's that's got any kind of uh that needs help man ask for it because you got there's a lot there's more people out there than you'd think that would actually that are gonna yep. you know they, they have your back and will um will help you through whatever you're going through absolutely and it, you know um trevor actually had wanted to do we were planning on doing a, a pretty big american death metal series with him and we were mm -hmm. kind of in the early works of putting some of that stuff together and so 
I know this is an American death metal band, but hopefully, you know, um, Bolt Thrower being kind of one of the greats uh, is is a fitting tribute to to that, um, to him and to to the memory of of that genre and, and what kind of he, he brought to it um, as a newer generation kind of death yeah, metal. Yeah, the enthusiast. He was, nobody ever questioned his love of death metal. And he was very encyclopedic, um, which is one of the reasons why we, we wanted to bring somebody with a, that kind of perspective in. And um, yeah, so it's. Yeah, I don't know anybody that had a bad thing to say about the guy. He was, uh, he was a good dude. Yep. He'll be missed. Yep, absolutely. So, um, but yeah, so we're going to hear from Gavin and Carl one last time, too, as we go into ritual and through the ages from the Fourth Crusade. Um, we've thrown a lot at you here. Uh, the Andreas thing, hopefully, it was a, a nice little surprise for, for people. And, <laughs> That's um, awesome. <laughs> uh yeah and like i said please you know this is the time you know um to become patreons uh this is our we're doing our our tank push you know our forward assault uh mm -hmm. you know with with that so it's time to kind of level up into that next level that we think we're at and so i think maybe andreas kind of recognizes that and maybe he can kind of uh be our war master and get us across the line a little bit and uh you know, go from there so um yeah so uh, for Bolt Thrower Part 1, uh, I am Jason. And I'm Mark. And no, we already actually had it, the Fourth Crusade. We already knew the album was going to be called that. We were looking for an actual um, artwork or painting that was around the Fourth Crusade, which we obviously found, <laughs> which is um, a painting by Della Crow of the uh, ransacking of Constantinople by the Crusaders. So it fitted well. Fourth Crusade is obviously fitted with a song title. It was our fourth album, our fourth European tour, and it all came in fours. It's an ongoing theme with um, with Bolt Thrower. It's something we've started from from day day one, even before I was in the band. The, the general lyrics revolved around mankind's downfall through its own stupidity, you know, warf warfare and, and and things like that. Um, so yeah, generally yeah, but there's there's the wider issues in there. You know, um, there's a lot to do with religion's hypocrisy in there, which you know is kind of pretty relevant and. Uh, and a lot of other, you know, other songs which kind of like about, say, one on there, about everyday life, you know, ritual. Mm -hmm. It's about kind of everyday existence, you know. So there's a kind of quite a wider, wider kind of variety of topics on there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, okay, yeah, generally speaking, it's it's a band kind of um, thing, you know, to a term that we kind of go ongoing theme within the band of, you know, mankind's downfall. It's something we find interesting through through warfare, which is an ongoing topic as well. It'll be there probably, you know, till till the end of the time, like end of the the band, you know.